You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Well, hey there, all you triathlon studs and stud ads. This is Coach Brett with another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Hey, on this show, we have both Rich Roll, the Ultraman Rich Roll, and pro triathlete John Hirsch. Both of them are really good friends of mine, and I'm honored to have them on the show. And we're going to talk with Rich about his new book that's coming out, and it's really cool. I got to see an advanced copy of it, and I was blown away. It was super cool. And then also he gives me some tips on how to do an Ultraman, how to start training for an Ultraman, not how to do it, but how to start training for it. It's uh, some really interesting stuff that I hadn't thought of before, so that's really cool. And you ought to listen in for some tips on how to start going long and to train better for your longest race. And Ultraman is going to be Ultra Baby is what I'm doing. I'm doing a self-supported Ultraman with friends uh, this fall. And then... Let's see, John Hirsch gets on and talks about his trip to Israel uh, for Israman. He did the half out there, which is one of the world's hardest half-distance half Ironmans. And then also about a training camp in Spain and all kinds of cool stuff. We talk about uh, women going to Kona. It's really neat. Just a great round of interviews that are here for you to check out and pick up some tips and training fun and all kinds of cool stuff. Maybe some inspiration and some motivation. It's all good. But before we get into these interviews, let's check out some triathlon news. Here we go. All right. In racing results, we have two big races that went down. Uh, that South African Ironman is a qualifier automatic qualifier for first place to Kona and in the men's race Frederick Van Leerd who already I think if you if you win Kona then you're automatically in Kona for the next few years I'm not sure but the press says that Frederick Van Leerd already had a spot but he went out and killed it anyway in 8 hours and 16 minutes and 35 seconds in yeah South Africa beautiful and then Ivan Rana from Spain did an 8.30, so about 14 minutes behind. And then Bart Arnotz from Belgium did an 8.35. So let's see. Let's move over to the women. This was really interesting. Uh, Jody Swallow, who lives in South Africa, uh, got first place. And now she is automatically into... Ironman Championships in Hawaii without having to do the point system, which is pretty cool. And she did it in 9:26, and then pretty close behind her. This is really this is really tight results, and we'll talk about that at Oceanside here in a minute too. Lucy Gossage at 9:31, and then Susie Cheatham or Cheatham Cheatham in uh, 9.33, so looks like about seven minutes, six, seven minutes uh, between the top three, which is crazy, uh, and that is really tight, and also, it, it they are all from Great Britain, that's pretty cool, 
And let's move over to Oceanside. Let me pull up the results for that. It's going to take a second. Oceanside was a really interesting race. And it's because the women's performance was almost identical to the men's. And one of the terrible uh, justifications for not having uh, as many women at Kona as there is men is that the women's field isn't as competitive. Well, where the results we were just looking at, the top three at Ironman South Africa, the top three men, was um, 20 minutes gap about, I'm looking at, maybe uh, 19 minutes. And then the top three for the women at South Africa was, uh, let's see, less than 10, like eight minutes. <laughs> Something like that. So the that is very that is more competitive in the men's race in the women's race than it was in the men's. So think about that for a second. And then also at Oceanside, which is a half Iron Man, I think Oceanside used to be a full Iron Man. Um, Heather Jackson won, and let's do the women first on this one. Heather Jackson, and then Heather Wortley from Canada, and Holly Lawrence from Great Britain. Uh, all within two minutes, one minute of each other or so. And the top 10 women actually had the same amount of time as the top 10 men The about uh, in the gap between first and 10th, which shows that the women's field is, is super competitive. So you can just kind of throw that whole, the women's field isn't as competitive out the window because that's kind of dumb. And... Let's see. There was some interesting stuff in the race. Andy Potts um, is a ass kicker at uh, this race. But I think Ferdino, uh, Jan Ferdino won last year. And Jan Ferdino definitely won again this year. And, oh, Lionel Sanders was in this race. Everybody's excited to see him him race because he's an up-and-coming pro that has just phenomenal numbers in, tra- in races, but in training too. But he's kind of new to racing uh, as much as these other guys, so he's kind of feeling it out. And Lionel got third, I believe. And uh, top three goes uh, Jan Ferdino at 347 and Andy Potts at 348 and Lionel Sanders at 349. And friend of the show, Jesse Thomas, got uh, fifth. And yeah, all around, uh, really, really cool to see these great results. Um, Angela Nath, friend of the show, Angela Nath, got fifth in the women's field with, uh, she had a five minute time, uh, time penalty where she had to sit out, um, for a bike bike penalty of some sort. I still don't have the details on this. We're supposed to interview Angela pretty soon, so maybe we'll find out more. But um, what she said so far is that the that she and the other top uh, female bikers caught the slowest of the male bikers, uh, male pros, and then got kind of stuck behind them, and then they get penalized for drafting. And it sucks, and there needs to be more time gap between the male pros and the female pros. That The female pros that are super fast 
are faster than uh, the male pros that are the slowest. And uh, there's lots of arguments on both sides of, you know, what should be done about that. Should there be, uh, should it be harder to become a male pro or, um, you know, every situation is a little bit different. I could, you could say that, uh, there's pros that just aren't having a good day, you know, and so they slack off on the bike, but then maybe there shouldn't be that many of them. So, um, they can, there won't be a pack of them that the women have to go around that are hard charging. I don't know. It's it's kind of interesting. Uh, we'll find out more from Angela what's going on with that. But anyway, both races, um, South Africa and Oceanside uh, went down uh, pretty well. So that's pretty cool. Uh, bummer for Angela, but um, there's more races coming up. I think she's doing Ironman Texas, which is a uh, it's a regional championship just like South Africa was. And uh, if she wins that, then she can go on straight into Kona without having to worry about points as well. So, all right. An interesting technology piece of news that happened at Oceanside. And this is really, really cool. Was Jan Ferdino's bike had wireless shifting on it. This is made by SRAM. And this, uh, we've had electronic shifting for a little while now. And it's starting to get competitive, and SRAM just one-upped everything and said, oh, you want to do electronic shifting? We'll do electronic shifting, but we're going to do electronic shifting with no wires. And so basically, with, let's say, Shimano uh, uh, electronic shifting, you press a button, and it sends the signal to shift through a wire that has to be run through your bike frame and all that stuff to the uh, derailleurs. And then the derailers do their thing. And I saw a response to um, the article about the wireless shifting that was on Jan's bike. That it was from a bike builder, and he said, "Bike frame builders love this idea because you don't need to run cables anymore, and you can actually just set it up, take it off, put it on." You know. just so much easier now, like this, with no cables than you ever had to uh, before. It's pretty neat. I like it a lot. It's pretty cool. Um, there's pictures of it on, I believe, on Slow Twitch. You can go find it. And also, uh, Ferdino's bike is a Canyon brand bike, which I like as well. I, I like the BMCs and the um, the Canyon look. Those are pretty cool. So that is big, big news. Um, it's not available to the public yet, but you know it's coming. And boy, once you go wireless, it's, oh man, it's kind of like having wireless uh, Bluetooth headphones. Once you get, once you get them, you're like, what in the world am I going to do when I have to actually plug in headphones again? <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> but anyway, okay. Also, there is a big Aerobar recall for the special, specialized shiv, and it's all over the, the news, but you may not have heard of it. Let me read the recall because handlebars, handlebars breaking will end your day uh, very badly, so you need to know about this. Uh, specialized, in cooperation with the United States Consumer Safety Product Commission, announced a recall of the 2012 to 2015 carbon aerobar with aero stem and hydroformed alloy aerobar. This follows a stop sale action from a few weeks ago. According to Specialized, the affected aerobars, and again, 2012 to 2015 carbon 
Aerobar with Aerostim and Hydroformed Alloy Aerobar. Um, these were sold as aftermarket equipment and original equipment on all model year 2012 to 2015 Shiv Tri models and the model year 2013 Transition Apex model. This notice does not apply to Shiv TT models or the Shiv Low Stack Aerobar clamp set. The concern is that the extension clamp bolt on the aerobars may break, which could result in the rider losing control and sustaining serious personal injuries. So I was riding my bike today, and in the uh, the crosswind and such, my elbow came off of the um, the aerobar pad and almost freaking lost it. So yeah, <laughs> you got to watch out for this stuff. In a letter to customize customers, uh, Specialized wrote, "Please stop riding the aerobars immediately and bring them to your nearest authorized Specialized retailer with a copy of this letter." Your authorized specialized retailer will professionally install the new extension mounting hardware at no cost to you. It sounds to me like it may just be a bolt. Um, we sincerely apologize for this corrective action, but your safety is very important to us. When you have your authorized specialized retailer, <laughs> it's in all caps, um, replace the extension mounting hardware on your error bar, please bring this letter with you to receive a $100 credit. This is cool towards the purchase of any specialized branded merchandise. Please choose carefully as we cannot refund the balance in cash and you need to use it all in one purchase transaction. Oh, okay. So cool. They're trying to make good on it uh, by giving you $100 towards uh, some some gear. So uh, follow up with that. And don't break your body out riding because you figure it's not going to happen to you. It's not worth it. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead and get started with our interview with my good friend, Rich Roll. Rich and I go a long ways back. He's been to several of the camps that I've put on, two of the camps that I've put on, and is super cool to hang out with. He's just as cool as per- in person as he sounds on the phone. We had a really good talk, and I haven't talked to him for a little while, so it was nice to catch up. And everything I say about the book in this interview is so right on it doesn't matter how you eat what you eat you get this this uh, recipe book and gives you it gives you some fantastic ideas how to get more veggies veggies into your life all right so let's go ahead and get started with rich here we go welcome to the next level Hey, are you there? Here we go. It's there you, there yeah. you are. Sorry, I had an external mic input <laughs> there. I had to, I had to, it was me. I had to switch my preferences. Sorry. Oh, man. I know over all these years, I don't blame other people first. <laughs> <laughs> did, 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 could you hear me talking? Yeah, I could hear. I could yeah. hear you. I just the last time I used Skype, I was yeah. using an external mic, and so yeah. I had to back in. And did you hear me say? You just stay on, and let me see if I let me see if the problem is me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I've learned. Oh, we're recording, so uh, I'm, I'm ready, man. How's it going, man? I'm doing really, really good. Did you see that uh, tweet the other day that somebody said you and I sounded alike on a? I did podcast. <laughs> I did see that. That was funny. <laughs> I don't know how I sound. I try to avoid listening to my voice. So it freaks me out. It, you know, despite you know doing all this podcasting, I, I, uh-huh. I'm so uncomfortable listening to my own voice. I think we both sound like uh, beachy types, like beach boy yeah. kind of people, and so 
too many bong hits. <laughs> no. Not me. No. I had, uh, when I was in high school, I had people ask where I moved there from. Mm-hmm. And I was like, from right here? I don't know. What are you talking about, dude? <laughs> Bro. Well, it's Texafornia. You know, you have yeah. a little bit of a Texas like twang, but uh-huh. there's a little bit of a surfer laid back drawl as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your book, man. Yeah, man. Thanks. We're, we're really excited. Um, we're kind of in the heavy uh, pre-sale campaign mode, but yeah. um, it comes out April 28th. It's available for pre-order now, but you know, this has been like a long road. We've been working on this book you know, for, t- I think we did our first photo shoot for it like almost it, at least a year and a half, almost two years ago. So we've been toiling away on this thing for quite a long time. It's been yeah. an incredible journey, and we're super excited that it's finally almost out. Um, and it's a great book, man. I mean, it's, you know, of course I'm going to say that because it's, right. <laughs> it's my book, but it was really exciting to write a book with Julie. Uh-huh. And, you know, this is her first book. And, um, you know, first and foremost, it's a cookbook. It's got 120 plant-based recipes in it, but it's really a lot more than just a recipe book. Like it's filled with tons of like lifestyle tips and tools and resources and all kinds of stuff uh, that I think... Uh, are all super helpful for just the average modern family who's looking to make better choices. You know, I mean, one of the questions that we get like every day is, you know, how can I get my spouse or my partner to eat more healthy? Or how can I get my kids off the crappy, you know, foods that they're eating or the mac and cheese or or whatever. And so a lot of it is just, you know, kind of things that we've done, um, you know, sort of strategies that have worked in our family to help all of us kind of transition to this plant-based lifestyle. So, you know, yeah, it's a vegan, it's a vegan cookbook and, you know, I'm part of that community and I love that community, but it's really oriented around, um, you know, putting a, uh, an appealing, accessible, uh, you know, veneer on, you know, the traditional vegan cookbook so that it's accessible and, and workable and appealing to the average modern family, no matter what their dietary proclivities are, because everybody wants to be healthier. Everybody wants their kids to be healthy. And, you know, we struggle with trying to find ways to make that work when we're busy and we're working and we're doing a million things. I mean, it's only guys like you and me that are online researching health and nutrition. You know, most people, right. they're just living their lives. You know, you got you to make it easy for people and you got to make it delicious, most importantly. It has to taste good and it has to be doable. So that was really kind of the, uh, the, the approach that we took, kind of like our, our, our theme as we, you know, compiled, um, compiled this book. So we're really proud of it and we're so excited that we're on the cusp of, of it almost being out there and being ready to sh- finally share with everybody. Yeah, you can tell. I, I got a pre-release copy of it uh, the other day and I made the mistake, Rich, of, of opening it and reading it when I haven't eaten in a little while. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was dying. I was like, oh my God, I'm so hungry. The photography in it is incredible. It is so yeah, we good. Have, we have amazing photography. The, the, the food photography is extraordinary and that yeah. always has to be good. But I think what distinguishes this book again is the lifestyle photography because yeah. it's, really, it's really a book about our family journey. You know, that's really kind of at the core of what it is. It's like, this is how we live. Like we didn't go out and find some chef to partner with who could come up with a bunch of recipes we could put in a book. Like these are the recipes that, you know, we, 
and when I say we, I mean Julie, really, you know, developed over the last eight years since we kind of, you know, began this journey. And, you know, all of the recipes are designed with kind of a twofold approach. One, to be able to kind of satisfy, you know, my training needs, like what's going right. to fuel me and what's going to, you know, satisfy me when I come back from working out all day and, and, you know, make me strong and help me recover quickly and all of that. But also at the same time, it's got to be stuff that's delicious that our kids are going to eat. And, you know, Julie's not slaving away in the kitchen all day. Like everything has to be quick. It has to be easy and facile and taste good because she's not going to make different meals for the kids versus what she's making for me. And so all the photography kind of is, you know, a really, it's just a peek into our lifestyle. It's all very editorial. We worked with this amazing young photographer named McClay Harriet, who basically he specializes in photographing rock bands. Like he goes on tour with bands and he shoots Lollapalooza and all of that kind of stuff. But we just loved his style. Like nothing's really staged. Like we would just prepare meals and he'd hang out at our house with our family and he would just shoot what we were doing. And those are the photos that ended up in the book. It I, over the years, like knowing you really well, I expected the book to be fantastic, right? Because uh, you always work on making sure you have really high quality stuff. And I, I, even expecting the best, I was still blown away. Like oh. I didn't think a rest, uh, I, I wouldn't call it a re well, I mean it's recipe, but a lifestyle food book, whatever, could be that good. Oh. It it oh. was fantastic i can't wait to actually show it to other people oh and, man that's super nice of you to say Thank uh, you. it's easy to say because it was astounding like yeah like you're saying the lifestyle um photography around your house is so cool mm -hmm. and the family and and uh yeah you look like you're totally in the middle of living and this is the food you can do you can eat to do it so yeah, thanks yeah. i mean you know i think that it goes back to uh you know, how, you know, how, what's the best way to kind of influence people? And you can browbeat them and tell them, you know, look, you're eating unhealthy foods. You got to get on the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, you know, why are you, you know, treating the environment horribly? But like, that doesn't work. You know, you know, this is something I've, I've been learning more and more about through my own podcast. Like I had this guy, Joshua Catcher on a couple weeks ago, who's a garment designer, is a fashion designer. Oh yeah. I liked him a lot. That was great. Yeah. And he, he works with, you know, vegan materials, everything's sustainable and echo and all of that. And he's like, look, I'm not going to be able to get people to wear my clothes by telling them they're going to be better people for wearing it. They have to be more beautiful. Like they have to be great, you know, and in the yeah. same way, I just put up a podcast last night with Ethan Brown, who's CEO of Beyond Meat, and he's trying to create like the ultimate veggie burger and, you know, sort of plant-based chicken products. And he's like, I, I I'm, if I want to convert people to eating more plant-based, I have to create a product that's equally delicious, if not more delicious. And, and that's kind of the approach we took with this book. Like, yeah. you know, we're not going to like lecture people on what they should or they shouldn't do or should or shouldn't eat. We're just trying to show you like, this is awesome and this is fun and this is like, you know, an aspirational way to live that, uh, that I, I think is really, you know, modern and cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, like Tesla figured out with the electric car, you got to quit making cars. If you want to convert people to electric car, it has to be just as good as your old car, but better. It has to be the same, but better. Exactly. Like it can't be too different or else it, people don't see it as a, as an option. 
And so they made this car <laughs> that outperform it performs on the same level of, as a Ferrari, you know, and you just charge it on a battery. It's amazing. It's the, it's the best car you can get. I mean, yeah. you could check every box. It's better in every single category, yeah. and that's how that's how you make progress. I yeah. think. And so going through your book. Uh, one of the very I made notes on like uh, six or seven things that I saw in there I wanted to talk about (laughs) (laughs) it's typical of me I I like making lists (laughs) and uh, you um, one of the first things that stood out to me is what you were just saying now is this in one sentence um, you're talking about a a recipe or fueling and you said um, here's how I do it Mm -hmm. and I was like that one that's rich roll and two that's smart because you're showing people, and I've I've do that with parenting um, my son. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't tell him exactly how to do something. Sometimes, sometimes I say, "Hey, you know, quit throwing rocks at cars," but other times I say, "He's trying to figure out how to do something." And I say, "Well, this is the way I found that it really works for me." Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's I think that's powerful. You know, yeah. that's that's an idea that I learned in in recovery. Like, you don't get up and and tell people what they should or should do, you know, or, or, you know, this is the right way and I'm the expert and you must do it like this. I just, I just share my experience, you know, and people can take from that, you know, what they will, you know, but I'll just say, this is how I did it. You know, there might be a better way, but this is what's worked for me. Yeah. And then, uh, the classic question, where do you get your protein is in there? (laughs) And, well, you got uh, to you got to put it in there. And also I wanted to back up a second and say you can tell from the book that it's uh that there's there's hints and clues and tones of just so much experience in there with uh how to eat vegan because mm-hmm. like you were saying you can tell that the author authors have uh been doing this for a while. Uh they're they've got they know how to handle all the usual questions, right? Mm-hmm. And um, like you know, where do you get your protein and stuff, and how to how to show people how to make it work in their in their life, and it's like yeah, it's once you you know the history of you and that you've done Ultraman's this way, Epic Five, Five Ironmans in less than a week or on in a week, and then um, uh, feeding the family like this, and ho- hosting a podcast about nutrition and health, like this book seems to have it coming in from all facets like it's really great but and the uh the where do you get your protein question i find myself uh really funny because you um if you just look at the uh nutrition label on most uh vegetables and and uh uh well vegetables don't have labels on them but just say Mm -hmm. a can of beans you know it's got so much protein in it and peanut butter and, and uh, it's got just massive amounts of protein in it that um, asking where, where do you get your protein is kind of a silly question sometimes. Yeah, but it's an interesting one. I mean, that's obviously the, the main one that everybody wants to know right off the bat. And, you know, a lot of people in the, in the vegan plant-based world get annoyed with that. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's if someone's asking that question, there's that's an opening to have a dialogue about it. And I think that uh, it's an opportunity, you know, and I think that we're in a culture right now that has this crazy fixation with protein and that fixation is fueled by a lot of, uh, you know, vested financial interests that would like you to continue to eat their products by explaining to you that this 
this nutrient, this macronutrient protein is act is absolutely not only absolutely essential for you to be able to get out of bed in the morning and breathe air into your lungs, but that the only place you can get it is from animal products. And it's just not true, you know, but it's so deeply ingrained into our psyche that the idea of challenging it is is tricky, I think. And so, you know, I try to explain it in as elementary a way as as possible. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, look, I know guys that are fruitarian all they they basically just eat bananas all day and then they go out and run you know 220 marathons and stuff so you know yeah. something <laughs> something is working in their life to be able to deliver protein to their to their muscles and their organs and and etc et and the truth is is that almost everything we eat uh you know, has protein in it in some form or another. And if all you do is kind of graze on plants randomly throughout the day, yeah. nature pretty much has it wired that you're going to meet your nutritional need, which is much lower than most people realize. Like, I think it's 10% of calories should come from protein. And mm -hmm. the World Health Organization actually estimates it much lower at like 2 to 3%. Oh, wow. Um, and most people you know, are basically sedentary and they're ingesting about, you know, two to five times the amount of protein they need. And there's no indication that that's a health benefit. In fact, the evidence suggests that it's damaging and, and harmful. And so, you know, part of my, you know, mission is to get people to better understand this concept. I was just looking at the uh, nutrition online for peanut butter and two tablespoons of peanut butter has 16% of your protein needs. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. It doesn't take much at all. And wow, that's pretty cool. Okay. And then, uh, what about, uh, you have a, a chapter in there, um, beyond the kale. Mm -hmm. So, uh, has kale jumped the shark? Are we, uh, have people figured out that it's not just kale is kale a, a um, a introductory, what do you call it? What a starter drug? <laughs> starter, yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know a couple observations about that. Yeah. Uh, look, kale's awesome. The fact that like people are talking about kale and wearing T-shirts that say kale on it, like uh -huh. that's an amazing thing, right? Like, so that's cool. I celebrate that. I'm certainly not against that in any way, shape, or form. But I think it speaks to, um, you know, on a larger scale, it kind of speaks to our, uh, you know reductionist inclinations you know the idea that like one oh, food yeah. is solve everything or or uh you know if i if i just remove this one like if i eat if i remove all sugar from my diet that's the solution or if i remove all grains or if i just eat kale like people want that one thing that they can do they overdo it and they want to believe that that's the ultimate solution to everything so it's put you know part of that kind of piece in the in the book is really a plea for a more holistic perspective about food and nutrition than to just kind of identify one thing as the as the be all one you know one all answer and the second thing is that <clears throat> you know the idea of of going beyond the kale is really the idea that that true wellness it you know isn't you know it begins and it begins with what's on your plate like what you put in your mouth right like that's right. super duper important but you know true sustainable wellness is so much more than that you know it's a it's a balanced uh, approach to mind body and spirit and so you know yes this is a cookbook and it's predominantly about food but it's really um, important that we talk about address and incorporate lifestyle practices 
into our lives that balance us out and make us healthy in the other aspects of our life, our emotional health, our mental health, our physical health, all of these sorts of things. Because you can eat as much kale as you want, but if you're like bonkers crazy or you're you know, irritable and reactive or, you know, or you're lazy and a couch potato, like the, these things are not making you overall a very healthy person, yeah. right? I need to look at all of those things. You could be trading stock in the, in the pit of Wall Street, screaming and yelling and gnawing on kale is not going to really help that much. Yeah, you can drink as much green juice as you want, but like <laughs> if you're out of whack in that regard, like you might look at that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, to blender juice is in there as well. And I like this a lot because I found out early on that a lot of stuff, uh, that juices are, are really high in sugar. Um, mm -hmm. and that's fine if that's what you need at the moment, but you know, day in, day out, you know, it, it may not be all that great for you, but, uh, blending is actually, uh, a really cool solution. And, um, you can blend fruits and veggies and then add water as needed. And then you have more of a, uh, filling uh, with more fiber in it, kind of slow down the, the sugar a little bit, and, and not need as much sugar. And so I I really liked it that you have that in there to um, to at least discuss with people that you don't have to juice everything and you don't have to blend everything. There's kind of a, you kind of decide as you go. Yeah, they each have their purpose and they're different. Yeah. You know, like blending is almost like an in, drinking an entire meal, and you have to be conscious about. You know what you're putting in. Like if you just if you just put a ton of sweetened almond milk and you know peanut butter and lots of fruit, like you're looking at a you know the the equivalent of a, a you know a chocolate sundae calorie wise. Mm -hmm. So you know it's about being mindful about what you're putting into that. And you know I I like to look at juicing as more medicinal. You know I think that you know juicing can be a lot of different things. If you're juicing just you know tons of fruit, that's very different than you know juicing spinach and kale and ginger. You know so. Different juices have different purposes, just as different blends do, yeah. and they, they all have their their place. And they're just qualitatively different, and I wanted to kind of talk about what those differences are and identify, you know, the different purposes for them. Cool. And uh, there's a there's a section in there embracing the now, which looks like Julie wrote it. Well, her face is in there in that part. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's key coded. Like there's a little. Like, yeah. For some of the articles, like there's an RR next to them, and some there's a J, so it kind of shows because we're writing this oh, together. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're staring, you know, Julie and I are kind of a yin and a yang. Like yeah. we have different ideas and different perspectives that mesh well together and speak to different, you know, kinds of people. Um, but but yeah, that was that was something that that Julie um, put in there, which again goes back to this holistic approach to wellness that extends beyond the plate. Yeah, you know, it always seems to me, Rich, that that my impression of you is that, and I think you, you talk about this a lot, is before you got into all this with Julie, you were not like this. And, <laughs> and then the, what I see in the photos and in the food and everything is somebody that it's like you're from another planet and then now you're in it and you love it. <laughs> it's it's mm -hmm. like, I am here, I am signed up. Thank you for picking me up on this spaceship. It is really cool as the way yeah, it comes across. For sure, man. For sure. That's, yeah. that's definitely, I mean, it, it really, you know, that's why it's exciting to write the book with Julie. I mean, the first, you know, Finding Ultra was just my story. And it, it's, in, it, you know, I make it very clear in that book that, like, Julie is really the catalyst for the whole thing. Like, yeah. she's the spine in the equation. But it was really my story. And so this was an opportunity for Julie to, you know, share much more of where she's coming from in all of this. And, yeah. 
And yeah, I mean, she's really the catalyst for all of it. And, you know, she's the genius and the, the artist in the kitchen. And so, you know, really, this is her book more than it is my book, I think. Oh, wow. Cool. Uh, it's definitely both of y'all, I think. Because it's, it's just, it's really nice. So when's the book coming out again? comes out at the end of April, April 28th. So we got about a month. And yeah, a month. April 28th, um, The Plant Power Way. And it's how many pages? I, th- I think it clocked in at three, like a th- around 320 pages. Yeah. I'm not sure what the final exact page count is. We're still, the, the final, final, you know, there's like the way it works in publishing, you're like editing down to the last second, you know, and there's four, like this book was complicated to put together because it's so graphic and photograph intensive. So the formatting, everything, stuff's getting moved around and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. the final, final books are meant to be printed at the end of this month. So we should have them in like a week, which is pretty cool. So, I, but I think, yeah, there's, a, I think there's, a little over 120 recipes, and it comes in at about 320 pages. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's really great. And the recipes just keep going on and on and on. It's really neat. So much mm-hmm. different stuff in there. I like the names for the things, too. There's a, there's a, there was a Kona something. Uh, yeah, a couple of the blends are from, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's really cool. Adventures. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, let's talk about uh, Ultra, Ultra Baby. Mm. My uh, let's talk about me for a while. I know. So what's what's <laughs> what's happening? You're you're about to just embark on this self-styled Ultraman adventure, man. I'm already understanding a little bit of what you went through. I'm already going, oh crap! This is <laughs> this is going to be a lot of work. Um, so I wanted you um, on to give me a, a few tips early on on what I can do, uh, and like. Um, because it's in, it'll be in October. It happens to be on the same weekend as uh, Kona, as Ironman Hawaii Championships, uh-huh. um, just by accident. And then uh, what I did is I scheduled it. I'm doing a self-supported Ultraman. I'm going to do the distances uh, the same as as the real Ultraman, and then people are going to come do it with me. Mm-hmm. And um, if if people finish, then they get a belt buckle, mm-hmm. and um, and we're calling it the Ultra Baby because. Uh, over the years, I've always just donated any charity money to um, March of Dimes for babies and uh, for kids. And um, the the thing immediately that I'm running into is, oh, yeah, you know, Rich has done these. And what's the volume? And I know you. what's the volume needed, you know, to, to train well. And to, I'm not looking to kill it out there. I just want to finish and not, right. be, not fall over every day maybe the last day fall over mm-hmm. but the um uh you know like what are what are some of the volume numbers but i remember actually um when your first time you were looking just to finish it really right right, or, right. and then um but you did really well especially in the swim and then the um the second time around you were looking more to, to compete and I, know, I remember us talking a long time ago, and you you were changing up your training the second time around a little bit because you already had so much base under you. Mm-hmm. A little bit, a little yeah. bit, yeah. So I'm I got a lot of a lot of base, but it'll come and go over the when it gets hot here in the summer and there's no races for a little bit. It's kind right. of, it's kind of like Texas winter, you know. It's uh, right. not as much training, so I'm going to look back off a little bit. So. Uh, looking for volume numbers and distances and stuff like that, um, 
that made you know based on my experience and having doing so much ultra stuff for all these years i may kind of have to you know modify or you knowing that what do you what do you think mm-hmm. um what well, i should I th- be doing i think everybody's different like i respond really well to you know i'm like a i'm like a diesel workhorse so i respond really well to high volume tr- high volume aerobic zone training mm-hmm. some people you know like a lot of like intense quality work in there. My body doesn't tend to respond to that quite as quite as favorably, yeah. and yeah. and you might be different. Um, so again, it goes back to you know I can share my experience, but I, I can't tell you exactly what you should or shouldn't do. I mean, you've been doing this long enough to know how your body functions best and how it responds to training. Yeah. But I would say that the you know there's a couple big differences when it comes to Ultraman versus Ironman. Um, you know, a uh, the obvious, which is you know, it's, it's a lot longer. So you do it does require putting in you know quite a bit more volume. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, and this is important, is that you know, you don't have to run off the bike, right? So you don't yeah. have to you don't have <laughs> to do you don't have to do a lot of brick runs. I mean, you should you should do some because you want to know what it feels like to run on tired legs. And so you know, my training was really oriented around. Every time I was running, my it was always on tired legs. Like I never did like a, a run after a rest day. Like I would never do a run on fresh legs. It was always about acclimating to running when I was most fatigued because mm-hmm. that's the experience you're going to have and like yeah. having to run 52 miles on day three. Um, and the other thing is, is we, you know, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday block, I'd always try to mimic a version of Ultraman. So Fridays were always, you know, a swim and a bike of some varying distances. Uh, and then Saturday is always my long ride and Sunday is always my long run. Like that's uh-huh. kind of, yeah. that kind of, that kind of anchors the training. And so around that, you, you know, you structure your, you know, in, your increase in volume as you progress throughout the season. But in that, in that, um, periodized way so you have built-in rest weeks and, and rest days Monday was always a rest day for me you know Tuesday is usually I don't know a swim or, or a bike or I'm sorry Tuesdays or two yeah two yeah and I, I, there would be one day a week where I would do double runs it was either shoot, yeah it was usually Wednesday I think um, and uh, you know but during the week you know the workouts are shorter and then you know, your schedule might be different. I'm not sure, but, but just kind of, you know, acclimating to those weekends and those weekends get longer and longer and longer until ultimately when you're, you know, six or eight weeks or nine weeks out from Ultraman, you're actually approaching the Ultraman distance in those three day, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday blocks. So I know that I did like, you know, 80% of Ultraman one weekend and then like, Three weeks later, I did ninety percent of it. You know, like so you're yeah, you're yeah. you're getting used to the idea of what it's going to feel like. Um, yeah. So so it's not strange. But you know, those long rides would ramp up to you know eight hours there at the end. Oh. And I think the longest run I did in training was I did a forty mile run, and then and then I did a forty five mile run on those Sundays. Um, and you know, those are those are learning how to do the walk run method. I mean, when you wake up, you know, on that third day you're and you're so beat up and tired you know the idea of running just seems insane uh, and the idea that you're gonna you know run it in the way that maybe you would run you know a 50k or a 50 miler on fresh legs is is a little bit different the strategy has to be a little bit different you have to understand that you are going to be tired and how are you gonna 
um, strategize around that. Wow, that's really good advice because I hadn't thought about that. Was was uh, start doing the Ultraman kind of on on the weekends and start building up to that, and then start figuring out how to make it work, right? Yeah, exactly. And that you know, this is this is where you experiment. You experiment with how you're going to fuel yourself. You know, always understanding you're kind of eating for the following day, not mm-hmm. just what you need in that moment. You know, what it's going to feel like. You know, when you have those tired legs and you got to run and. And, you know, is it going to be a rock, a walk, run method? If so, what is, you know, what is the interval that's going to work for you? Is it four miles of running and and a half mile walking? Is it four minutes of running and one minute of walking? You know, playing around with that to find, you know, the combination that, that, that suits your physique is really important, I think. Hey, you know, something I wanted to tell you this, um, on... Uh, lately, I've been experimenting with more fat in my diet to mm-hmm. for calories, and I'm loving it. And, mm-hmm. and it's so easy to find. Uh, guacamole and mm-hmm. uh, cashews <laughs> are my go-to right now. Yeah, and um, and it seems to add in uh, more of the calories that I need to train because I'm training for um, Ironman Texas coming up, and right. uh, without having to eat all the time. You know, because I'm getting in the calories, but I'm not just constantly just stuffing my face with food when I was doing uh, mostly uh, trying to eat lean on fat and mostly carbs. And, uh-huh. um, and the other upside that I'm finding is this craziness where uh, people eat high fat and um, their metabolism kind of shifts a little bit mm-hmm. or a lot. And then they find they're not so carb dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, especially while training, they just don't need to eat as many carbs because your body's used to fat as a um, as a fuel and uh, not ketosis kind of stuff, <laughs> right. which I don't. I, I'm not a fan of. But the um, I just I wanted to let you know and see if you had any thoughts on because um, I remember you and I talking a couple years ago about how you would say you would eat uh, you know an entire avocado and stuff like that at, at once <laughs> and for fuel. And I gotta say, Rich, like, like uh, adding in more fat to my diet as an ultra endurance athlete, adding in more fat uh, into my diet has really been nice, really yeah. nice. And I can understand that. I mean, I think that that you know, when you're training ultra endurance, you know, a, the the lion's share of your training is all in that aerobic zone, right? Yeah. And so when you're training in the aerobic zone, you're metabolizing fat for fuel as opposed to glycogen. Mm-hmm. So. You know, eating a bunch of sugary stuff isn't really the the correct approach because you're not relying on those sugars as your predominant energy source. Right. Um, you know, fat is a more efficient fuel. There's much more you know calories per ounce in fat than there is in sugar, and uh, and it's a, like a slower kind of all day burning you know kind of fuel. So you know that makes perfect sense, and I get it, and that's what I would do as well. Um, I think that that you know part of it might be informed by the fact that the more ultra endurance training you do and the, and the more volume you're doing in that kind of aerobic zone, the more fat adapted you become. Like you become extremely efficient in sort of operating in that fat burning zone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's unclear how much that's informed by the foods that you're eating versus the kind of training that you're doing. Like I I, I sort of um, tend to believe just based on my own experience that. You know, it's it's much more about the kind of training that you're doing than the foods you're eating. But I think that when you're, you know, you're correct in that 
eating a bunch of sugary stuff isn't really you know going to do you very much good when you're training in this manner. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I I agree with you that it's not, it, and it may vary per person, um, but definitely people argue about whether it's the food or it's the training style, right? <laughs> and um, you know what I noticed um, last week? I was out on a long ride, and um, I bonked because I ate too much sugary stuff too fast, and I was going too hard. <laughs> and this weekend, I set out to redeem myself and just backed off the pace just the tiniest bit and um, had just a fantastic workout and then my brick run right after it, a fantastic bike ride and then my brick run right after it was faster Mm -hmm. Um, even though I I actually ate less the entire time. Um, It was really cool like how much your body responds to little inputs kind of here. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten to the point where, you know, when I'm when I'm fit, like I'm so used to I'm so acclimated to this kind of training that I can go out and ride for hours and hours and hours with literally just water if I'm yeah. staying if I'm keeping my, you know, my watts in the zone 2 and I keep, you know, keeping my heart rate, you know, below that Z3, like because your your body has, you know, you have enough, you know, fat stores in your body to, you know, fuel you for, you know, a week of that or what, you know, it's not going to run out of energy. It's like 200 marathons back to back or something like that. But if you exceed your, if you exceed your aerobic threshold and you start going anaerobic, like you start doing some threshold work or some tempo work, you know, that's not going to last like, cause you need glycogen for that. And so you will burn through your, your stores of that relatively quickly unless you start fueling yourself along the way. Yeah, it, when I finished yesterday, I felt so good, and then overnight, and then this morning, um, and again, I ran faster than I had before by backing off the pace, so I could actually take on fuel and use it, and uh, without getting sick to my stomach. And then I needed less. It was weird. Right. Um, yeah. Cool. And I felt so good when I was done. I had that weird feeling of like, man, I could just do this all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, no, you can't, you know, you got to go pay the bills. But man, I could see, I could see actually, I was reading an interview with a guy on Slow Twitch who, oh, the guy that won Ultraman this year. Uh And he said that uh, it wasn't going to be that big of a deal uh, for him to race in it because in training he'd done crazy stuff like accidentally found himself in another state while on a bike ride you know (laughs) and i'm like man how do you fuel for something like that and then after yesterday's ride i was like okay i could see how you could do that you just back off the pace a little bit and then uh it's amazing what you can do absolutely amazing yeah Uh, yeah the body you know the body adjusts and it's it again it goes back to efficiency it's not it's not like threshold power um, it's efficiency. You become extremely efficient in that particular form of exercise to the to the extent that you know you can go all day and do it. And that's why you hear guys like Dean Carnazes. I mean, he goes out and runs a marathon every morning. He's so he's so adapted to that 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 for him to go out and run you know four hour you know marathon every single morning, it's just not that taxing for him. Like he doesn't really need to bring food or water. You know, maybe just you know one bottle of water and and he's good. Like he's so adjusted to that, and that's what the body does. And, you know, that's part of the what the training is about is yeah. you know becoming adapted. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thanks for the tips. And yeah, man. The- so this is October. October. 
Yeah, and you're definitely invited. I know you got a million things going right. on, and we'll I don't know if you ever want to do another one. Who's uh, who else is doing? Do you have anybody who's like signed on to do the whole thing with you? Oh yeah, I got several people. There's a oh. there's a list oh. online on zentriathlon.com. There's a uh, the Ultra Baby is at the top, a link, and then there's a Word document or a Google document in there. I hope other people can see it. Sometimes permissions can be a pain. But um, and it's got a list of everybody that said yes so far. Uh, we've got a female pro. I can't remember her name off the top of my head. That's coming, and then um, Devin, Texas Devin, is mm-hmm. going to. Uh, he might come crew. I don't know if he's actually going to do it or not. And mm-hmm. um, Tom uh, Barbieri from New York is coming down to do it. And we got like um, about three or four or five that have committed to do it. Yeah. And uh, but you know how. Th- things get you know right down to the wire it gets yeah uh things start popping up and and um and are you gonna do you have a lake where you're gonna do the swim or are you gonna do it totally we're gonna do the swim in a lake and then we're gonna bike yeah uh right from the lake around and then um the next day uh the the big thing i got to figure out right now is the uh the coordination of the course um it's easier to support the race if people do loops Mm -hmm. um some people nobody i've talked to so far but i just know some people are like oh crap loops and then some people say um oh yes loops (laughs) (laughs) because the dangerous thing that i've heard about uh ultraman and the thing that limits the number of people that can do it is vehicles out on the course trying to support bikers uh, especially, and then a yeah. little bit of runners out yeah. on the open road. And if you do loops, then all of a sudden you can have a whole lot more people, and it's safer, and and um, they can go by an aid station, and family can see them a whole lot easier, and mm-hmm. just do loops. So I'm trying to figure out a way to do that that's not uh, mind-numbing. Yeah, way. I get that. I mean, otherwise it becomes such a logistical puzzle because – yeah, you got the crew vans, and when you're going point to point, then you're staying in different places every night, and it, yeah. it, it you know, you, your mind starts to fill up with all these details that you have to worry about that extend far beyond just you know the physical aspects of you know covering the distances. If we do point to point, it'll be um, everybody comes back to College Station and stays you know at their place, right. and but different starting points every day, and then different ending points. So. Well, that's exciting, man. Yeah, I'm super excited. I'm glad to have you on to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, of course, man. Anything I can do to help, that's very cool. <laughs> you can say, uh, good uh, luck. <laughs> yeah. You didn't, uh, John Hirsch is not in on this? Um, I'm trying to convince him. He, he, I, th- I don't know when Beach the Battleship is. It usually ends up being around the same time. Um, where, yeah, I've invited him. So, uh, oh, oh, Christine Lynch might come do it. She's got oh, a problem. Okay. She's got an injury in her foot, but uh-huh. she and I are about uh, the same speed, and um, she's already talking trash to me. Uh, she, uh, she not only are we about the same Going speed, down. she's actually. I think she's actually faster than me. So, um, this may be a, a ultra baby where women just dominate the thing and just destroy all the guys. It would be really cool to see. Women are so. fast, and the longer the longer the distance, the better the women are. I know. How cool was it watching Hillary Biscay at that one? Uh, uh, was it year before last? Or was she this she destroyed. You know, yeah. she's a machine. You know, she's awesome. I remember saying that if she won, they need to call it Ultra Woman for a year. <laughs> they should, right? 
They sure, they certainly should. <laughs> yeah, cool. All right, well, hang on, and uh, I'll talk to you after the after the call's up. Okay, okay. cool. All right, thank you so much, Rich. And let's do, let's do, um, let's do some sound probiotics. Well, let's let's talk about Rich again for a second. Rich is a really big deal in the uh, health movement. He's been going around and, and giving talks and and uh, motivating people to get healthier. And he really did uh, turn his own life around from being stressed out and out of shape and uh, into doing Ultramans, which just shows that you can do it too. It's really, really cool what he's done. So he's a really good friend, and it's uh, an honor to actually have him on the show. And um, a long time ago, he actually uh, reached out to me first. So he is a genuine supporter of Zen and Yard of Triathlon. I even have a picture on the blog of him wearing the Zen Tri shirt. So uh, give him some love and help him out by getting that book, uh, those, that book uh, pre-sales, uh, rocking and rolling. All right, let's see. Sound probiotics, 10% off. Okay, what are probiotics? They're little tiny pills that you take that don't taste like anything. So you just put it next to your coffee maker in the morning or I, uh, I have a basket of kind of healthy stuff that I put into my green smoothies when I make one pretty much every day. And uh, or you can put it by your toothpaste or something like that, something you use constantly, and you just put it there, and you pop one of these, and what it has in the capsule is food to help feed the healthy bacteria in your gut, and it's the healthy bacteria that make you feel good, help you digest food properly, and it helps your immune system from getting sick. One of the worst things that can happen to you while you're training for endurance sports is to get sick. And not getting sick is so easy to do by eating right and having healthy gut bacteria. They say, I think it's like 70% of your immune system is the bacteria in your gut. So if you feed them the right thing, you feed the right ones the right thing, then you're way better off and will get sick much less often. So go ahead and check these out. These these are formulated for athletes, not just uh, sedentary couch potatoes, but super cool people like you and you and you over there listening and you. Yeah, you. You can, t- you can try them too, man. They're great. Okay. Sound probiotics. Let's see. 10% off with coupon code ZENTRY. Capital letters. ZENTRY. All one word. They contacted me to offer to be on the show so you know that... They love what we are doing here. And they also signed two Olympians, Maddie Boom Boom Reed and mountain biker Sam Schultz with Cannondale. So check them out. Soundprobiotics.com, big supporters of Zen and Yard of Triathlon. All right, speaking of being healthy, and our last interview was with a vegan, Rich Roll. Let's keep on going with our buddy, John Hirsch, pro triathlete who's also really healthy he's a vegetarian so he'll he'll sneak in some uh what does he eat what do vegetarians eat that vegans won't uh dairy maybe maybe eggs i think it kind of depends but anyway john is super cool and he's a really good friend of mine i love talking to john he's got so much energy and i'm glad he became a professional triathlete because i think it helps calm him down so he doesn't um, just explode in the flames from having uh, too much to do, <laughs> just from vibrating. 
himself into pieces. So let's go ahead and check out our interview with John Hirsch talking about all kinds of cool stuff. Israman, training camp in Spain, women to Kona, all kinds of cool stuff. All right, here is John. Here we go. What is up? Hello. Hello. What are you doing? I'm chilling. It's actually uh, Pi Day. Are we recording yet? Yeah, it automatically starts recording. Sweet, because I don't want anyone to miss any of this. This is going to be um, awesome. Exactly. And I, I'm bringing my A-game straight from the get-go. Like This is like going to be the best interview ever. Fifty, shade, 50 Shades of Try. Oh God! Uh, but anyways, I am hanging out after I uh, my my doing my post stronglegbulltraining.com dot com camp uh, chill out, venting the sofa a little, taking some recovery. And today, as many people in the geekiverse know, is Brett what's Pi today? Day. Pi Day. Pi Day. Three point one four. It's also Einstein's birthday. No, but it gets even better. Uh-huh. Pi Day three point one four plus. It's 2015, the next two digits of Pi Day, 31415. And we're going to go one level beyond that. And guess what time I went to my Pi Day party? What time? Every geek is geeking right now. Uh, 926. So at 926, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You had the most unbelievable experience of Pi Day that is possible for the next 100 years. Wow. That's great, dude. Yeah. And we ride around on bicycles that have uh, circles for wheels. Right. So everybody within this community knows that Pi Day mm-hmm. is a big day. It is a big day. And I celebrated it by going to a party that I didn't fully understand um, <laughs> was going to, in fact, be all just Pi. Was it this podcast? <laughs> no, no. The, I am now fueled by four different types of Pi. Okay. Yeah. I could send you a photo if, you, if you know, we need it for the show notes. Okay. Yeah. So people can get a sense of what all the pies were that I was eating. I don't even like pie. pie I like cake and I like brownies. Wait, do you say you don't like pie? No, I don't. I like key lime Whoa. pie. That's the only kind of pie I like. Whoa, dude! I don't I like pie, dude. I don't like apple you. pie. I don't well, like. Well, you know, pie. we're using this is we're we're not just using the interwebs. We're using a phone. I don't even like. And cobbler. I don't think my government wants to know that I'm talking to somebody who doesn't like pie. <laughs> oh. I'm just saying. Okay. There's black a... helicopters, black helicopters, black helicopters. <laughs> what? So I want to talk about three things today. Oh, not just pie? No. <laughs> I, don't, I... I don't even know if that's going to make the list in the show notes. <laughs> oh, it better make the show notes. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about Isra Man. Yes. Uh, Strong Like Bull Camp. Yes. And 50 Women to Kona. Okay. Interesting that you threw the last and most controversial one out at no, me. No, I want um, you to choose. Without, without which, telling me that we were going to be having that conversation. I messaged that to you like totally a week ago. No, I messaged did you that to you. The 50, did you, men, did yeah. you mention the 50, oh, I almost said 50 shades of gray at Kona, the 50 women at Kona thing? Yeah. All right. So let's start with which one? Israel? Mm-hmm. All right. Sure. So do you want to ask a question? Do you want me to just go on some crazy rant? Then you jump in with ADHD, then I jump in with ADHD, and the next thing you know, we're talking about pie again. Squirrel. <laughs> um, <laughs> that reminds me. We'll, uh-huh. start, we'll start with that now. There's a guy that follows me on Strava named 
he gives me you know he gives me kudos on my Strava rides. Okay. That can kind of happen some weird way. Mm-hmm. And his name is Dun 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 dun. Yeah, dude, you got a lot of dead air for a podcast. Hold on, man. I think squirrel bait. Squirrel bait. <laughs> Every time I do a workout, squirrel bait gives me kudos. <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm, that sounds wonderful. Okay, let's go back to Israel Man. Do All it. right, you start. Wait, just start talking about Israel Man. Okay, well, let me ask you: uh, When was it, and right. where is it? All right, Israel and how do you man spell it? Israel Man. E S R A M A N is the premier triathlon in the country of Israel. It takes place in a lot, which is in the southernmost region. Uh It's a tiny sliver of land between Egypt and Jordan. Mm -hmm. So during the race, you're actually looking at three different countries. Oh, that's cool. Um, Yeah, it's really cool. And then um, it's also the Red Sea for those people who uh, know their uh, Torah and biblical scholarship. It's where Moses crossed over um, and the... Oh, and escaping the pharaoh, big. I thought the Red Sea. That was where they to swim. Interestingly, Red Sea no longer parted. You still have to do the swim course. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who want to do like a beach to battleship or New York City try, where you're like yeah. floating and not really having to work, not the race for you. In fact, the Red Sea is no longer parted. You have to do all point uh, point two miles of the swim. So I'm going to Google Maps right now and trying to get to Israel. Okay. And it's yep. a you want to go. Oh, the Red Sea, or is it the Gulf of Arabia? Is yep. that the Red Sea? Nope. No. Uh, yeah, don't, I don't know. I'm not looking at that. But it's the Red Sea. So it's warm. It's like the water is beautiful. It's crystal clear, kind of like the Caribbean. For those of you mm-hmm. who have been there, it's got fish and coral and all sorts of beauty. And it's you know it's just wonderful, fantastic. Um, it's one of the best swim venues I've ever I've ever done. Oh, the Red Sea. Um, the race is held okay. in late. The, uh, the race is held in late January because it's crazy hot in the desert in the mm-hmm. Middle East in the summer. But in the winter, it's actually beautiful. It's like 55 to 70 without any humidity. So just ideal conditions. Yeah. Um, which is important because it's one of the hardest courses I've ever done in my life. Yeah, I've heard it's the crazy hard. bike, it's like, I, I don't know the numbers, but it's 20K of just straight climbing. It, mm-hmm. You know, it took me an hour to get 20k into the race for those of you who don't speak metric that's like the 12 12 miles or something mm-hmm. and it's just all climbing steep pitched climbing like out of the saddle grinding climbing for an hour and it's brutal yeah. um after that it doesn't it's not flat it continues to be relentless climbing as you ride along the israel Egypt border, which is kind of funky because there's a giant fence and you know dudes with machine guns. And my dudes are actually mean like 16 year old girls with machine guns or 18 year old girls. They have mandatory yeah, military service. Yeah, but in they're Israel. into it. Girls like guns. It's crazy, but it's like it's really weird. Like I'm hanging out and there's like <laughs> we're in the we're in a lot and we go to like, yeah. um, you know the, like at this little mall and there's like an 18 year old, which apparently I got old because now 18 year olds look really young. Uh-huh. And she's like got her little shopping bag from like Safara and a machine gun. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's like I'm like whoa. She's, like, playing on her phone. You know, she's got her machine gun around her body. And, like, you know, she's holding the she's holding her, like, safari back, which is just it's trippy. Anyways, the course is stunning, though. And it's, like, all yeah. uh, it's all just through the desert. And it's just absolutely beautiful. They close the road in both directions, too, which is amazing. So you have this totally closed road that's beautifully hard. And um, then you finish and you start with a 10k downhill run that is crazy steep and that's um 
it's a two transition race. Then you run 10, um, you run 10, um, K straight down into the city and then you run another, you know, 10 K or whatever to the 12 K to the finish along the promenade and stuff, which is really nice. There's a little Allenbeck section too, along the beach, which is nice. So it's, um, on, the, it's on pavement. It's on the very Southern tip of Israel. I'm looking right. at a map yep. way out. Yeah, where there's nothing around there. So no, there's nothing. I mean, there's, there's literally, I flew into Tel Aviv and drove four hours yeah. through the desert um, and that was it. And it was like, there was like all very little between the two. I mean, it's just old school desert. Like when you think if, if anybody listening to this podcast closes their eyes and like, there's like imagines desert. That's what you're, that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Red rocks, no real like vegetation, camels. I mean, like straight up hardcore desert. It is beautiful. Yeah. But it's also like, has that, like overwhelming kind of sense of like um I don't know, there's just something really like desolate about deserts. It's really it's it's a trippy kind of awesome experience. People that um people that get used to the desert really love it because you can see so much of the terrain. And mm-hmm. I have a friend that uh, he's Lakota Indian and he's done survival stuff in the desert and in the woods. And mm-hmm. he said it's actually easier in the desert because you can see where stuff is, and in the woods, you can't see anything. You don't know where right. you're that going or, or or what's going on. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I could, I could, I yeah. could, I pre- I could orientate myself in the desert pretty easily, you know, just with the sun, which they don't have clouds because they don't have rain. So, you know, and be like, okay, that's Masada, the giant mountain, the castle fort. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that's the sunrise. You know, that's the sunset. Okay, this is all pretty. You know, you can pretty much figure it out. But you're right. Like in a, I grew up in Connecticut, New England, which is like deep, deep, thick forest, and mm-hmm. it's totally different. Yeah, you just walk into that, and it's like it's like um, what's that movie, The Hobbit, right? Where they're like, "I'm a car," and then you get totally <laughs> disoriented and confused. That's <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, but it's beautiful. So the race. Well, the other thing too about the race, people haven't done um, races in outside of America or mm. Canada, but if you haven't raced in Europe or Israel, which is very European, what people don't realize is that like the, the level of support from the institutions, like the government and stuff like that and court and businesses, but especially like the government yeah. is really high. Yeah. So, you know, they don't, they'll close a road in both directions. They'll commit 200 cops to keeping the, you know, to, to keeping the course like well marshaled. They'll, you know, add barriers and promenades and they'll just do all the things that, you know, they'll build grandstands and like, you know, they'll do all these things to support a race in a way that I only ever experienced in Europe. You know, it's just a different level of support. Yeah. And Israel, man, at least now is still independent. So it really has this like flagship, um, of flagship feel to it. Like it is carrying the Israeli flag for, you know, in the, for, for, you know, out into the world. So uh-huh. it has a really, it, there's a real sense of pride in the race that I really appreciated. Um, and ha- a sense of it being a big happening, you know, for a race that maybe a lot of people who are American listening to your podcast, who don't know of it, it's because it's not, you know, local to them. It's in, if you're on a lot, it's a big deal. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's a big deal, you know, in the same way that like, you know, in Europe, it's a, you know, Roth is a big deal, you know, it's right. like, these races carry a lot of, you know, their happenings and the, and the community comes out and the, the government supports them. And it's really great. It's really, it's really awesome to see. I love being a part of it. 
um, you know, so that was really cool. And the race itself went pretty well. It was the top American and fifth overall in the half. They also do a full, by the way, which yeah. you don't have to do the two the you don't have to do the twenty k climb twice. Yeah. But the full is like no joke. I mean, I think the you know the winning time was you know the winning times are the winners are some great athletes. I think it was Sergio Marquez from Portugal. He's you know you know perennially top Ironman guy, and I think he like barely broke ten. You know, like or went yeah. like he didn't break nine. I mean, nobody going fast because this race is that hard it is you know incredibly slow so um yeah really interesting so yeah i've heard uh, i've heard over the years about how hard it is it's like really rugged yeah it is i mean between the between the it's just that the climb out of the water the climb from the sea up into the plateau is just brutal and then the bike is just undulating up and down up and down big up and downs too not like 50 footers like you go down 400 feet, you go up 400 feet, you go down, you know, and just relentless. And then, oh, and this is the other thing I totally should have mentioned. It's a crazy ass wind. It's like stand you up wind on the bike. It's <laughs> <laughs> like kind of a small thing to like overlook, but the wind is like yeah. brutal. The wind is like having, like having like um, a lineman pushing on your shoulders against you yeah. or for you, depending on the direction. But it's, the wind makes it, you know, really, really hard. Great race though. I mean, like, all that said, like as soon as you don't worry about like your time and just worry about you know doing it, mm-hmm. um, then it's quite good. I think what's going on there with the terrain is that's a rift valley, a continental plate. Mm-hmm. The continental plates are pulling apart right there. It just looks like it to me. Okay. And you can usually pick those, find those where lakes are long and skinny, um, mm-hmm. all in a row. And that's what you've got. You've got this inlet off the Red Sea, and then the next one up is the Dead Sea. Right, mm-hmm. and they make a they make a path, one falling the other, and then there's another one up north of that, and so that rift valley is pulling apart, and then your bike ride has to go um, up the sides of these canyon walls and stuff to get up high to get out of that. I mean, yeah, it, that's pretty it, it, typical. I know nothing about geology, so I'm just gonna. Um, um, you're gonna agree? I'm just gonna say, yeah, sure, sure, um, yeah. If people awesome. want to see another one, you can go down the almost to South Africa, South Central mm-hmm. Africa, and the, what are the name of these lakes? There's a whole line of lakes all in a row that are, um, mm-hmm. that I know for a fact are a, um, a rift valley where the continent's pulling apart ever so slowly. It's pretty neat. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, cool, dude. That's awesome, yeah, man. So that, yeah. You yeah, go fastest American? Time. Yep, fastest. Well, here, I was fastest for the half. I, for the half, you yeah. Know, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I didn't I don't know if it was in the full, but yeah, I was fifth overall against a really big international field, tons of uh, uh, tons of international dudes, like yeah. a lot of actually Israelis too. I think with mandatory military service, you have a pretty fit local population, and oh, there's yeah. a lot of triathletes involved yeah. in that. Um, so there were probably about five to ten elite um, Israelis, and then maybe another ten or so international, um, kind of high quality elite, you know, pro. Mm-hmm. Pro dudes, including um, was it Massimo? He's really good. He came over and crushed everyone. He's the guy. He took eighth in Bahrain. He's the Italian cyclist turned triathlete. Yeah, he's kind of a big deal, um, for sure. And he just stomped. I beat him out of the water, and then I watched him go by me. And it was um, yeah. Remember you saying you can see forever in the desert? Yeah. 
Well, yeah, you get to blow. It, it, I got to watch him pulling away from me, you know, for a prolonged period of time as my heart broke. But uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Heart. But it was it was it was cool to get yeah. to watch him uh, ride. You know, cause he was on a whole other level of everybody. He rode through the entire field, and then by the halfway point um, at the turnaround, I saw I was in fifth, maybe, and they were like he was just catching first, second, and third. And then by the time he got back to the turnaround from the turnaround, he, uh, he had like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes on everybody. So he certainly has a good, he certainly knows how to ride a bicycle. That's for sure. And being an Italian pro cyclist, um, you don't get to that level without, um, you know, fair amount of yeah. ability to ride a bicycle. Italy so has, that was pretty exciting. Italy has more pro cyclists per square mile than every, than any other country in the world. <laughs> yeah, which is probably why he decided to be a triathlete. But <laughs> yeah. um, it was probably a really yeah. great idea. Cause they, but he's, he's, God, that dude freaking hammers on a bike. It's amazing yeah. to watch. Really smooth, really steady, which I was surprised. Mm-hmm. I was expecting him to drop me, like, you know, like straight away. And he actually just gradually pulled away Took from his me. time. Like, as super he controlled. Choked you yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. He was really patient but powerful. It was yeah. an interesting lesson for everybody who gets kind of emotionally jolted by head-to-head competition. Like, yeah. he just was you know, clearly just executing a plan and executing it perfectly. And, you know, the fact that, you know, he was coming at, he was coming out of the water so far behind was not something he was worried about. (laughs) He just was doing his thing. There were some really good ITU guys who were there and they just, you know, they're on another level with the swimming. Right. But still this guy, because, because the bike was so hard, this guy won it, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, this race was custom for him. I mean, I think he wins most flat, uh, half Ironman distance races, you know, he's that mm-hmm. good, but in this case, it was even more suited for him. Um, so yeah, that was kind of exciting, and then... Well, what um, was uh, what was Israel like? You, you flew into Tel Aviv? Oh, so I made a big trip over there, because one, I love travel, uh-huh. and I think it's really awesome to do it, right. and two, I mean, it's such a far trip that when's the next time I'm going to get over there? Yeah. And the race was really generous in terms of uh, supporting us, so there was a lot of opportunity, you know, I had a little extra cash just to deal with, uh, uh-huh. to like kind of budget towards this. So I did a big trip. We hit Masada, which if anybody knows anything about Masada, it was an ancient palace turned into a fortress by the um, by the uh, by the Jews when they were rebelling against Rome. So to give you like some timeline, right? That's like about two thousand years ago. Yeah. Um, and then um, in, in Masada, these 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 warriors, these rebels, um, they never thought they'd be able to get a fortress on top of a mountain with like a tiny little snake path that you can walk up um named the snake path and uh and so they were like oh the romans can't get up here like where this is impregnable and the romans just were like romans about it so they took two years and built a ramp and then eventually <laughs> on the night that they were gonna yeah i mean it's so roman right so, so at the so at the night that they were gonna storm and storm the the storm the top of masada the um the uh the rebels um uh, executed, um, they killed each other. They they selected ten people to kill everybody, and then from that they selected one person to kill the other nine, and then from that the one per- the last person killed themselves. So when the rather than being captured and slaved, and, um, oh wow, I didn't know. I've never you know, heard and that all story. that. Wow. Oh yeah, this is a famous famous um, part of Jewish Death history. And then capture. yeah, and then so then the Romans were like, okay, we're here, and they just found you know dead people. Yeah. Um, which was really intense. You know, and actually, it's where the Israeli armed forces get sworn in, is on the top of Masada. Wow. It's, um, so it's, yeah, it's a really, and it's it's amazing. So you go there, and there's actually a, an ancient palace built by um, Herod, Herod, sorry, Herod, yeah. who, who, um, 
who built this giant luxury palace as his kind of like getaway house. Mm-hmm. And then, and then there's, um, and then, you know, later, obviously it was, it was this fortress with all this, you know, heavy symbolism and history. And then, um, and then actually sometime after that, actually some Christian monks during the Holy Crusades or not so Holy Crusades ended up, um, kind of camping out there too. So it's got this like, you know, it's like history on top of history on top of history, which is exactly the theme for all of, uh, anybody's visit to Israel. Because then you do that, and you, I, we also hit the Dead Sea, which is kind of amazing. I think that you'd probably appreciate that a lot because it has a psychedelic nature to it almost. Like, you can yeah. float in weightlessness. Yeah. So it's very, but it's, so it's very similar to, say, like a sensory deprivation chamber. Right. It's so super, super salty that you don't sink. Right. Um, it's so remember, super salty that it's like... you posted pictures of it, of being there. Yeah, it's really, it's really relaxing. I mean, mm-hmm. for sure. And the, the, the local, the locals being the Israelis and others, believe it has a lot of medicinal qualities to it as well, like healing qualities. So there's a lot of spas and mm-hmm. kind of a, uh, an industry around that. It sounds really great. And we did three days in Jerusalem, which is um, intense. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who follows ancient history, modern history, or, you know, current politics. Anything. So really, <laughs> anything. Anybody who follows yeah, anything, anything a, knows about yeah, Jerusalem. No, right, exactly. Jerusalem is, like, wild. Yeah. And I also grew up with, like, a, um, a Catholic background, so... Uh-huh. All of this stuff was like part of my kind of childhood, and I yeah. had all these like, and I didn't. So to see all this, all this in like real, per, in like see a lot of this stuff kind of first person was fascinating. The other thing that's crazy is that the scope of it, mm-hmm. old, the old city of Jerusalem is one kilometer, right? So it's like by one kilometer, it's yeah. tiny. So you know, you think in your mind's eye that all this stuff is spread out over this big place. Because mm-hmm. like, you ever watch a base? You ever go to like? Because I think this is like the only thing I think of like when you go to a baseball game. And it's the first time you've ever been to a baseball game, and you've only ever seen baseball on TV, and you think it's, you go there, and you're like, whoa, this is really small. Oh, wow, it's like, the food's like right here. Like, yeah. you expect it to be kind of far away and big, and it, it just isn't. Like, you know, yeah. the the Western Wall um, is right under the, you know, the Dome of the Rock, uh-huh. which is right, like, next to um, the um, the Church of the Sunflower, which is where, you know, Christians believe that Jesus was... Um, executed and then um buried yeah um so anyway so it's like very like all of it's like within like seconds of each other it's you know which also of course like you know can you know can imagine the endless you know conflicts that have arisen over that over the years but that was pretty and that was pretty amazing and intense to witness so um we so we visited that oh and then this part was probably the highlight of the trip which we weren't even expecting which is we hung out in a bedouin uh with bedouins uh-huh. For people who don't know who the Bedouins are, they're kind of the in American Indians of Israel. Uh-huh. They're the local. They're like the oldest indigenous people in some ways. I think mm-hmm. I'm saying that, and I may totally be wrong, but uh, they've been the Bedouins have been like wandering the desert as nomadic uh, people for about seven thousand years, uh-huh. um, and they have their own culture and their own independent. Um, uh, customs and stuff like that, and they they're really fantastic. So that was really fun. We like took a camel tour and we hung out in tents and we drank tea and we heard Bedouin music, and that was really awesome. So the Bedouins are just totally totally fun. Um, so that was really great, um, and that but, was kind of amazing. And we actually we actually visited the occupied area or Palestine or whatever you would call the disputed area. I do not want to. Get this like all hate I'm mail speaking, like, told, sent to I know, man. I'm you not, are I, 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 like, wrong no, like, even at how you refer johnhurst.org. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't exactly like um, get into the uh, 
the exact beats of it, but uh-huh. I mean, like, even how you, even what you call it, still reflect on what you think about it. And I'm trying to say as neutral as possible. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, but it was interesting. So we check that out too, because I'd always, you know, I mean, it's so, you know, it's so prominent. There was a, a the road we were on got blown up the next day. Um, and we were like, <laughs> whoa. Whoa. So like, you know, like if you, you know, so you hear about all the stuff in the news and I was like, you know, I wanted to kind of check it out first person. So that's Wait, so you went to the, what'd you call it? The occupied area or the Gaza Strip? Yeah. I mean, what? well, yeah, I mean, right. It's complicated. I forget. This is going to sound kind of, you crazy. actually got into the Gaza Strip. Is that possible? No, I didn't go in the Gaza Strip. I went to the other part of it. Um, the area between, um, the area, uh, east of Jerusalem. So like the, what's the known as like the kind of the West Bank area. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I've got a map open right now and I'm trying to figure out like, I like there's a, there's a town or something called Yada. And I, I'm wondering if that's yeah, where Yada comes from. Are, there's going to be a, there's a lot of podcasts that I'm sure infinitely yeah. better um, with dealing with complicated political situations than a triathlon one. Yeah. So I'm going to leave that to some experts out there, but mm-hmm. um it was certainly like, for my, for my, you know, for, as a person who wanted to rock, so, you know, who wanted to kind of, who was there, it was really, you know, just powerful to see all of this. And then in totality, it just made for an amazing trip. You had yeah. this amazing race in this beautiful natural place. Oh, and oh, by the way, you also get a free, um, right outside of a lot, about 30 kilometers north is uh, Kingna Park, which has all these Egyptian stuff. So I saw a 5,000 year old Egyptian um, temple. And that was amazing. And then uh, also some all these Egyptian Egyptian hieroglyphs, because the Egypt didn't know that that was going to that um, that was an Egypt back then. So um, <laughs> I said that cutting cheek. But there was all this like really cool stuff. So I got to see like all these different cultures. It's really really fascinating. Yeah, I'm there right now. Um, I'm looking at Timna Park. And yeah, it's wild. Let me look at some and then right yeah, next Google door, you actually have Petra. Has anybody ever rolled? Have you ever seen uh, Indiana Jones and Lost Crusade? Yeah. Yeah, you know that part where they're like at the end where they go and the, they find the Grail and they're in that crescent valley, the crescent moon. Moon. Oh wait, is Petra where that yeah, yeah. town, that town, that um, yeah, that the rock carved, cave town, carved yeah, into the exactly. side of the city, of the walls? Yeah, it's all like that's like a that's like a, a short day trip from, from a lot. Did you go and there? It's crazy beautiful. No, I oh. blew it. I should have gone there. Oh man, I totally, totally blew it. Yeah, I know. I feel really stupid it. about that. <laughs> but we didn't have enough time, and we had to make some decisions. Also, I had a lot of training to do, like, mm-hmm. the first week we got there, because I was yeah. getting ready for the... What we ended up doing, which is, like, kind of geographically stupid, is we drove... We landed in Tel Aviv, drove four hours north, hung out in a lot for a week so I could train, and then hit the road for a week during my taper, and yeah. then came back. So, I mean, there was actually, you know, I mean, you got to do take care of business, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. God do you know what I'm saying, son? you got to take care of business. you got to... <laughs> You know, so I'm looking you know, at the scenery around there. It's just so brutal. My yeah, God. it's beautiful. So, anyways, I was taking yeah. care of my business and uh, training, so I missed out on a couple of things that I really want to do. But, but you know, I'm hoping to go back next year. So we'll see. Oh yeah, I think it's, it's cool. Yeah, I think it's a really great race. I'm kind of tempted to take on the full next year. That's what I'm thinking. Ooh. And uh, I really like it in the way, in one sense because training for it was really interesting. It's weather in the Northeast this year was diabolical. Uh-huh. So to get ready for the race, I actually raced cross and I would do these like back back cross races. So I'd wait, I'd mm-hmm. do an hour riding, right? And then I'd do an hour race and then I'd do an hour riding and then I'd do an hour second race. 
Mm-hmm. And he ended up with this like brutal, like four hours of, you know, high intensity training. Well, at least two of those hours are super hard. And, um, you just see numbers and cross races that you don't see ever. Like I was probably putting out like 700, 800 watts for 30 yeah. seconds on this one climb. But I do, but you do the climb. I don't know. I maybe did the climb 40 times over the course of the day. Yeah. You know, like That's it's just lot. wild. So yeah. yeah, it's like, it's like, you know, cause each race is 10 laps and then you do 10 laps in between. So it's like, Every, you know, and you're just and you're at that like really on the river race effort. It's just really awesome. So I really got in great shape um, doing cross, and then obviously, oh, and me and Christine did that ultra um, where she won. Mm-hmm. So I had my ultra debut, I took fourth. Christine Lynch, um, my lovely fiance, won, yeah. and that was pretty badass. And it turns out she won with a grade four stress fracture in her foot, <laughs> and she didn't know it. Um, so she's in a she's in a, a giant boot. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so uh, getting ready for the race was really fun. Like, I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed the process of training for it. So I think that, you know, I might, I might try to do it again next year if I can. Tell me. Um, tell me. A... The... Well, go ahead. No, especially if the Russian economy continues to do really, to struggle, because I got incredibly cheap plane tickets to Moscow. It was, a, like, it was unbelievable. 600 bucks to right. fly from New York to Moscow and then Moscow to Tel Aviv. Yeah, I mean, millions of people can be struggling with their economy, but as long as it services you and your flight schedule, it's good. Well, in fairness, in fairness, <laughs> I was mostly benefiting from the fact that their economy is failing due to the fact that they're run by a gangster despot. <laughs> oh, I know. He's just a, right now, they don't know where he is, and his girlfriend just had a baby. Like, this guy is just out of control, man. Well, he yeah, has been forever. Great. I mean, isn't he great? Terrible. Like, do you do you ever see the part where he steals the video where he steals Kraft's ring? You know, the guy from the Patriots. He won the Super Bowl. His team. He owns the Patriots. They won the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. He had a Super Bowl ring, and Kraft and uh, Putin just straight thug gangster stole it. He's like, "Hey, Kraft, give me your ring." Kraft's like, "Okay," and then he's like, "Thanks," and just walks out. <laughs> I didn't know that, dude. Like, he yeah. did straight up. And people are always saying, like, I mean, I'm not. I don't want to get overly political, but everybody's like, oh, I don't know if this dude would try to really, would this guy really try to take Ukraine? And yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh, dude, I don't know, man. I just saw him jack crafts a ring. I think he probably, <laughs> you, I don't think, I think you might. I think you really might. I think you I, might. If the dude's going to steal a ring, I'm pretty sure he's cool stealing a country. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. So tell me about the food the there. Israeli food's really good. They have veggies for breakfast. You ever listen to Wu Tang Clan? That's a song there. There's we eat fruit, veggies for breakfast. But yeah, they have oh, veggies yeah, for Wu-Tang breakfast. Oh yeah, Wu Tang from uh, the West Bank. Yeah, the Wu Bank <laughs> or Wu Tang Financial. Um, that makes me think about that. <laughs> but no, the food's really good. It's um, it's, it's their own blend of Middle Eastern food. It's like yeah, hummus. Have, do they have you know, hummus? Have like, do they do hummus? Yeah, a lot of hummus, oh, a lot of falafel, a lot of salads with cucumbers and I'm tomato right and. Uh, and shushaka, I get a lot of that, which is this like delicious tomato vegetable dish that you uh-huh. dip bread in, like really delicious uh, breads. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. Really healthy, really delicious, really vegetable heavy, which I really like. Um, and they have very good, very good coffees. Really, coffee's really good, really strong. I like uh-huh. that part. Um, so yeah, the food's fantastic. I, you know, especially as a vegetarian, like we eat really well. They also have a lot of um, pasta. I think because they have a lot of Italian influence, either because of geographical proximity or the history of the Crusades. But for whatever reason, there's a yeah. lot of uh, Italian, which is 
if you're training and, you know, racing, it's pretty cool. But they have everything. I mean, it's like, it's a really international place, so they have Japanese food, they have, you know, whatever. I'm really, I don't eat, I'm eat, really hungry they really right good now. seafood. <laughs> oh, man. I, you didn't go to pie day, dude. If you had rolled with me, you would have had eight different pieces of pie, and you'd be totally sick It just made me really freaking... I'm, I'm wandering around my kitchen looking for something to eat oh. right now, so I can insult oh. my audience by eating on the podcast, like I right. usually I'm do. Drinking, I'm drinking coffee. I don't know if they can hear that. I hope uh. I used um, to drive. We used to drive. So, what about the uh, what about the people? Now, I've heard Israelis can be really tough. Like their mindset is like, mm. man, they, there's no such thing as being a pussy over there. Like, <laughs> I'm just hey, saying. Yeah, just, did you just drop? Did you just call drop the word? No, like right I, before I, you I had. Uh, they're just freaking tough, man. Like a feminist topic about fifty women. It's like, yeah, dude, we're total feminists, except for when we're making we'll you know derogatory statements. <sighs> That's my exacerbated sound. Like a cat. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hope it's loud enough. Hey, on that. I hope that comes on the recording. Yeah, the podcast got to be slightly. Exhale at you. A podcast the, has to be the, slightly um, offensive so people we, listen. Like, what is he going to say next? That's like the Howard Stern thing. <laughs> <laughs> the is our experience with the Israelis were that they were really, really friendly. The people in the lot are kind of a, it's like a speech town. So it's kind of like super laid back. Everyone's like, hey, man, we're, we're down here in a lot. It's cool. Like, really? hey, let's go ride skateboards. Yeah, yeah. It's very, like that. a lot's cool. like a beach community. So it's like, it's mm-hmm. like rolling to like, you know, just super chill. It's like SoCal, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like Israel's version of Southern California. It's just like everyone's mellow. Nobody's in a rush. It oh, was I've very, seen some very surfing nice. videos. And I, then, maybe it was um, from a lot, but like people surf on the, but, on the, on the shore of Israel. Yeah, that's in. Um, that's just north of Tel Aviv. We actually didn't get there. Yeah, we were, that was another one of those things I really wanted to do. I'm just mystic because uh, I love surfing, but unfortunately that didn't happen. The other, uh, so the Bedouins are the nicest people in the world. They actually have a uh, entire culture based around being friendly. So, so you know, like the whole like it's like, like Jamaica. Well, but, yeah, it's like maybe I don't know. I've never been to Jamaica, but like. When you go to like oh, the Bedouins, they're like, "Oh, you're here. Let's start the making tea to welcome <laughs> you ceremony." And then they like it, it involves like a big drum thing, like yeah. they, they're batting, they're smashing the, the co- actually it's coffee, smashing the coffee beans into a into a container that's like both grinding the coffee and drumming, mm-hmm. and that tells like the other people like, "Oh, we have visitors," and like then they come, and then everyone hangs out, and like so it's know, like waking have, like, up in the morning to cups. a coffee grinder, and how everybody's yeah, like, "Oh, they, I well, want to get up." Well, they, it's really cool. So you walk in and they're like roasting the beans in front of you, like on a little mm-hmm. fire. And then you're like, hey, and they're like, hey. And then they like throw the, the roasted right in front of you, mm-hmm. which is exactly how you're supposed to drink coffee, by the way. You're supposed to roast it like immediately. Um, I've heard, it yeah. dies, actually. Okay. So much better this way. And then they throw it into a, the grinder, right, which is their drum. And the dude's like beating out this sound, this song. Right? He's playing a song, which grinds the coffee. And then... People roll in. They're like, "Oh, hey, we have visitors." And then it's like, it's like rude if you don't have three cups. So you have to like, so you sit in like in a tent with like on the, you know, they have like little uh, cushions on the floor, and like you just hang out and talk, and it's nice, you know. It's been like, like, like that's like a culture of kindness and like warmth and bringing people in and making them feel comfortable, and you know, it's really beautiful. And then, well, wait, I gotta, I gotta ask a question about drumming on the coffee. Do you think? Uh You know how like Tibetan monks can meditate and then realign right. realign the crystals of water. I didn't actually know that. Oh yeah. So, 
do you think that them banging while singing happy songs on the coffee beans make realigns mm-hmm. the molecules of the of the caffeine to make it better and everybody that drinks it is happier i mean i can't i know everybody who drinks it's happier right and i know that it uh it, it's, it's certainly very meditative to listen to them do it mm-hmm. i don't know about the molecular level stuff but i'm not a scientist <laughs> so okay you'd have to probably ask you know somebody who claims to be a scientist He's right. actually a hippie. I don't know. I'm no geographist. <laughs> I'm no geographist. So, yeah, um, yeah back, so that back, was back. My, my experience was that, like, people are very, very happy. In Jerusalem, there's, like, it was really interesting. We got there at Friday evening, which, uh-huh. if people know anything about Judaism, is uh, the beginning of the Sabbath. Okay. So we got there, and everybody was just gone. I mean, it was, Wait, like, is that, like, every like, every Friday? Yeah, every Friday is the Sabbath for, right? It's like you okay. know how Christians celebrate Sunday is the Sabbath. Yeah. Right. So for, um, for in Judaism, it's, mm-hmm. it starts Friday night and goes to Saturday night. So for like the first 24 hours we were in Jerusalem, it was everybody was really mellow and very pious, right? Nobody was driving. People were walking everywhere, mostly to and from religious services. At least the, the, the you know, the Jews who um, we saw more prominently because we weren't in the Muslim part of the city. Um, so it was very mellow, very chill. And then, um, so we we, for tw- we were there for 24 hours, and it was just very, like, pensive and really calm, and everybody was in a very, like, you know, religious state, which was kind of not like a, like, in a, in a, like a state of mind. Mm-hmm. And it was really nice. Like, everybody was very chill. Right. And then Saturday night came, and we didn't know this, but our hotel was in the, like, hopping part of West Jerusalem, mm-hmm. and Next thing I knew, there was, like, young people everywhere. And this was, like, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And there are, like, I watched two people do a breakdance war, like, <laughs> like hardcore breakdance war. Wait, wait, like, what point cool did you together? step into the time machine into Brooklyn? <laughs> Dude, it was so cool. And, like, so then next thing I knew, it was, like, but every, there was this, like, static, like, not, like, not static, like, like frantic. Yeah ecstatic energy on like Saturday night in West Jerusalem. Like everyone's out, everyone's hanging out. Everybody's psyched. That, you know, everyone's like recharged from the day off. Right. Oh, yeah. And everybody's like, Wah! it was really cool, but everybody was super friendly. Like I know that I think because of the idea of mandatory military service and because, you know, obviously it's a very tense political situation. Right. You would think that on like a day to day basis, it would be like people would be badass or um, as you said, they would not be pussies, but that's, Whoa, Super John. offensive. John Hurst. Yeah, I don't know why you'd say that. So I'm not going to say it that way because I think that's, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of messed up. So, but I, my experience was actually the day in and day out um, <laughs> experiences was everybody like my, was unbelievably friendly. And that being said, right, I live in New York City. Uh-huh. So my threshold for hostility, oh, yeah. anger, you know, yeah. tension, it's like kind of like off the charts, right? Yeah. Like, I could probably roll through Beirut and be like, oh, man, I'm so glad to be someplace where people are nice. <laughs> so, you know, like after living in New York City, like, <laughs> when you, you know, When you live in New York City, you go to you go to Beirut for a break. Yeah, I mean, especially yeah. like after the like after the murder of Eric Gardner, you know, yeah. New York was tense, man. Like, yeah. you know, there's everyone's looking at each other like, hey, we're about to have like, are we just going to start this? This is going to just go off. Are you looking like, at This is kind of a powder yeah. keg. Like. Yeah. You know, this shit is not right. Oops, you're going to have to... Whoa. Up. Sorry, I dropped the S word. Anyways, people were just like, whoa, this is tense. Like, New York City was... When I left, New York City was 
really tense, you know, like yeah. it was so, I mean, yeah. So to me, like rolling through Jerusalem was like, oh, you know, fine. Well, it just goes to show. Life. I mean, just anywhere you can have unrest at the snap of snap of the fingers. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. 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 It's um, anywhere. Yeah, like Ferguson just had the, the cops shot by somebody and right. they don't even know. I don't, the last I heard, they don't even know who did it. They're trying to figure out who yeah, did I mean, it, I but think, then how do you? I think that in both, how do you I get cops both America, to figure it out? Yeah, I mean, no one is, wants to listen there to. There is them. this like underlying hostility, right? Like yeah. the Israeli, the Israeli conflict goes back, you know, fifty years in the modern era and mm-hmm. two thousand years over time. The problems in our country, the racial tension and stuff like that, is not exactly new, right? So no, but it know, is pretty old. Flare up because there's a, a long history years. of problems. Yeah, and there's some there's some long, yeah. kind of crazy. Tension. But anyways, I found I found my experience in a lot, especially, but actually all over Israel, to be really pleasant. People are yeah. really, really friendly. Yeah. And if you ever get there and you get a chance to do like a Bedouin thing, I would strongly recommend that too. Because yeah. um, the Bedouins are just my like dad, a whole other level of awesome. One of my dad's friends, who we know pretty well, he worked in Saudi Arabia. I think, mm-hmm. and went out into the desert until he found the Bedouin community and drove like two days or something like that. Yeah. Um, I think there's Bedouins in Saudi Arabia. And uh, then, or maybe he was in a different part of the Middle East. And then uh, stayed with them for a few days. And then mm-hmm. turned around and came back. And he said, yeah, they're so friendly that just showed up and they just started feeding them and they hung out. And he, yeah, exactly. He pulled out this uh, coffee grinder, <laughs> now that I think of it, <laughs> and showed it to us. It was like, yeah, they, exactly. they gave me this and it was a metal coffee grinder. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I said, yeah, I just gave it to me. They wouldn't re- that they wouldn't let me not take it. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. it's a cult. I mean, there's a, it's amazing, right? Like you, you think that like we, we're so used to kind of the American Western kind of greed culture. Uh-huh. Like it's kind of amazing to think that there could be an entirely different paradigm mm-hmm. where like the most important thing isn't taking you know making money. It's you know taking care Community. of each other. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, travel's really good. Like for people who don't travel you don't get out of whatever it is that is the dominant culture that you're in usually. And so going on a trip and then triathlon's a great reason for that, right? Like going on a trip to explore is just fantastic. You know, if you get to, you get outside of that, you get, you get exposed to things that you normally don't and it makes you think and reflect and you know, maybe it doesn't change how you live or change your beliefs, but it might, but even if it doesn't, at least it gives you like some perspective, which is really the, great. The one I like the most about traveling away from at least an American big city but a lot of big cities mm-hmm. is, um, and then going somewhere else completely different is the realization that you don't have to live at that fast of a pace. Yeah. And then Dude, you want to slow down is a, is a Go hang out with Bedouins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the one thing that like me and Christine yeah. immediately experienced with the Bedouins was like, everything was mellow. Uh, everything was intentional. Everything was at a pace that was, so much more manageable, and yeah. we really love that. Actually, and my, it's also well. My brother lives in downtown Chicago, which is it's a lot like New York. It can be really confrontational and and mm-hmm. uh, arguing and yelling. It's just how you get along. And insulting is a <laughs> is a hello, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah. a good insult is a is that's how you show somebody that you like them, and that you right, t- right. that you, you took the time yeah, to craft a good care. insult. Yeah, and then um, and he went on his honeymoon 
to I don't know south of France or Italy or something like that for a, for a couple of weeks, <laughs> and I talked to him like a week after he got back, and he said he was still trying to readjust back to the Chicago pace of life. It's just <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a rude awakening, especially like I have a, a part time law job as a public defender, mm-hmm. and that's just like they call it an adversarial process. I mean, it's meant to be com- combative, you know. Mm-hmm. Like we go in there, and it's just, yeah, it's really hard to, like, make that transition emotionally. So you want to talk about Spain real quick? Yeah, let's do Spain. So took a couple of weeks off after Israel, like, you know, healed up, rested up, traveled back, and then was off to my Spain training camp, which you've been to. Uh-huh. And we again had, we had actually record numbers. Um, oh, so I don't go, week. and then a whole lot more people come? Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, I was going to say because, you know, people hear so much great things about it that they decide to come. That's true. So we had, um, I don't know, 14, 15 people in the first camp, 20 in the second camp. We live in this giant, beautiful coteo on a farm, a working farm in Spain. This actually is an upgrade from what you didn't know. This year, we finally made friends with the guy who is in charge of the farm. Uh We made better friends. Better. And we were always friends. And he was like, dude, just pick whatever you want. So we had from farm to table food this year. Ooh. Literally, like, the potatoes in the ground, the potatoes on my plate within, like, an hour. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Wild. Yeah. And then we did all and the that farmhouse climbs. is really old, too, right? It's, um, yeah, it's, a it's all stone. And... Century. We live in a 17th century. Um, it's called a coteo. It's yeah. basically like a giant compound. Um, but it houses everybody. Really nice. You know, ancient, or not ancient, but, like, you know, antique, kind of beautiful, rustic. Like, the but, walls are real thick because they were built. Yeah, exactly. If anybody, it's 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 quaint. It's like mm-hmm. old. It's beautiful. It's you know, it's, it has character. It's really nice. Yeah. Um. But you know, it's also very nice. I mean, it's like nice accommodations, like mm-hmm. three star accommodations. And then you know, we did the, we did our thing. We did uh, three swims Monday, Wednesday, Friday. We did about a week long. We we did the highest climb in Europe or Southern Europe, which is 32 kilometers, 6,000 feet to the Pico de Valletta, which is the uh, roof of the Iberian Peninsula. So it's the tallest mountain in mainland Spain and Portugal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a health food chef, uh, Christine Lynch, who's a certified uh, holistic health food counselor, as well as a certified yoga instructor. And we were really good this year about making sure that we did stuff every day besides tr- um, just swimming, biking, and running. So we did core, we did strength training, we did yoga, um, and we did these like a long epic rides, you know, two to four hour rides. You know, yeah. we, it was great. We had, we had the normal, like we had everything from like top athletes there to, you know, people who were very, very novice. And we broke it into three different groups with different send off times. And we had, um, you know, we have a support van and it's just really great. And actually registration's open now. You can visit us at stronglikebulltraining.com and it's got, it's only $985 for all that which is insanely cheap. So how many days? Like if you look at any of the other camps, they're like 2,000, 3,000. Yeah. But you get video swim analysis, you get, um, you know, you get descending lessons, you get, you know, Oh yeah, you get awesome descending training. lessons, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do some serious climbing and descending. You get, and you get to train in epic places, um, an epic, yeah. epic place. It's where a lot of the pro-European teams uh, go to. And you get to visit Southern Spain, which is amazing. Like, yeah, we, we were went actually, you know, we, we the... went and grabbed a coffee at a, What's that? All the all that. What's the name of the Moorish castle that we went to? Oh, the Alhambra. Yeah, in Granada. The Alhambra. Man, it's so aw- That is unbelievable. It's so amazing, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, just phen- It's fantastic. I mean, it's one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. I mean, it is. The Alhambra is beautiful. The history, the architecture, and I really know a lot of it. There's actually mm-hmm. an ancient um, Iberian slash Celtic temple right mm-hmm. by our place too. 
that we found. And so, like, the amount of the history and stuff is, is really quite it's quite massive and I know a lot of it because I've been going there for 10 years. This was our 10 year anniversary of the camp. So I have a lot of that and I'm a real like buff for that stuff and I do a lot of reading and I go before the camp starts and I try to spend I go to school every year there Mm -hmm. um, to take Spanish classes and learn about the culture and stuff. So I'm I'm a real fan of the place. I love it. And I try to convey a lot of that to um, the athletes that come. So, you know, it ends up being very easy to train very hard because your mind is very occupied, whether it's natural scenery or the cultural experience that you're taking in. So it really mm-hmm. combines the best aspects of training with the best aspects of vacationing. And then the other thing, too, is it's, it's real lonely planet type stuff, which is to say it's you're going to get off the beaten track, right? Like if I when I went to Israel, I saw the same 10 things that everybody sees in Israel, you know, and that was just by, you know, except for when I was training. When I was training, I was seeing all this really interesting stuff that I never would have come across, but for the fact that I was out in the middle of nowhere, you know, swimming, biking, running. Right. So it, it's really great to explore a place uh, as an athlete and as a, you know, because you do see things that you'll never see, you know, if, if you're if you're just kind of doing the tour bus thing. Um, so I really want to tell everybody, sign up now. We're running a crazy $200 off early reg thing or $300 off. But so right now it's under a grand. And uh, all you yeah. have to do is put down a $300 deposit. It's on Bike Reg. If you go to com, type in under the search engine, Strong Like Bull um, Training or Strong Like Bull, probably. Is it good enough? And you, the, the camp will come up, sign up, come with us. You will not regret it. It is awesome. And Brett, you came, isn't it? So um, I think yeah, you probably what, agree. Um, what people should know is that it is beautiful. And it's both hilly and uh, relatively rolling flat, depending on the ride that you go on, mm-hmm. and mountainous. And um, yeah. and the support van makes it super easy. Um, mm-hmm. So, because uh, like on my first, no, my second day there, it was so windy and I was tired because I was chasing your ass up the side of a mountain one day. Yeah. That, by and, the way, the mountain's called El Torcal. It's famous. Yeah. 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 And uh, <laughs> the tour, the Giro, the Italian Giro goes through there? No, no, Spain. no. The, uh, right. The, the, <laughs> Italian. The, the, uh, <laughs> it was actually the Ruta del Sol is the local tour that uh-huh. has all the top proteins that, that takes place. Yeah. And they do that climb. And the Tour of Spain also does the climb. Yeah. So it's really c- cycling historic. And it's beautiful. Yeah. And... The rides are, are uh, yeah, they're really well supported, and so you can be any level, and you can uh, be a good cyclist, uh, and like for example, on day two or day three, and I was on my tri bike with um, deep dish wheels and stuff, and it the crosswinds were so bad, and this one little canyon that um, it just happened to be that day, it was like that, and. Uh, I was getting blown off my bike and my legs were toasted from the day before. And I said, I'm done. <laughs> and I just sat yeah. down. And the next thing I knew, there's the van. And I hopped in. Yeah. And there was another guy yeah. in there. And, uh, yeah, it, we were, the van was just going along picking up people that were like, okay, that was that was plenty hard for today. And then you go back and um, you uh, go back to the house and then, like, eat. And there's limited uh, – connectivity to the outer world there is enough there's wi-fi and all that but it's like the whole atmosphere of the camp is you're there to relax and not get too caught up in everything 
right. going on, and um, and, then sure. the, and then the food, and then um, yeah, it's a farmhouse. It's away from town, but it's like a ten minute drive, and you're in town. And there's a swimming pool nearby, so all around, it's like it was really, really cool. You found a really cool place to put on a camp. Yeah, I, I'm really excited, and you know the fact that there's so many other Europe, top European pros and stuff that train there makes me realize that I really stumbled upon something great ten years ago by going there. But yeah, it's it's been a, it's been really fun putting it on, and it's we've created a bit of a community out of it, and uh, I really like that it uh, like everyone after the ride, you know, we sit around, we do a big family style dinner every night, and everyone's telling stories about their ride and their training and how things went, and talking a lot of you know it's just a lot of camaraderie, and I think that's really missing in a lot of camps. Like I don't think as many camps bring people together. You know, a lot of times it's, you know, the meals are separate or whatever. And this is like very much about building a, you know, about building a kind of a, a community team kind of feel to it, at least for that while we're all working together and training together. And I love that. Yeah. I really love that. Is, it also is very much like you're oh, on a pro cycling team, right? You have a day of yeah, training and then everybody eats together. For. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Everyone trains together. Then everyone eats together and everyone hangs out. It's great. Oh, the only other thing I was going to say is obviously we, we, we're going March 1st to the 15th this year, and it is terrible weather here. So if you just suffered through a terrible winter, you want to go to my camp because you will suffer through a little bit of bad weather, then you'll get on a plane, then you'll train, and then when you come back, you will be way fitter than everybody else because they were on trainers. If you were stuck in the northeast or the northern half of this country this year, you were not riding your bike. And if you have any early races or early Ironmans like Placid or um, Challenge um, Atlantic City or, you know, Wildflower or any of the events that are really May, June, even July, you will not have enough time to get all your cycling in if you don't go someplace warm. So yeah. why not go someplace warm that's, both, that's a real cultural experience? put on by really cool people and put on by people who um, do it as a labor of love. Like strong, like bull, you know, the people who run it, me, Christine and Charles, we've never made a dime off it. We just will put it on because we love it and we yeah. want to be there. So um, join us. All right. Now, <laughs> do you want to talk about something controversial? Yeah. Oh, I hate controversy. Whatever. Um, you live for it. Well, let me ask you. What? Okay. So let me ask you this. What do you think about 50 uh, shades of women in Tacona? <clears throat> okay. One, I think there ought to be equal men and women. Okay. Right? Because all the world's biggest races and the Olympics mm -hmm. and stuff do that. Fair enough. And we they ought to catch up with the times. And the other thing that I think that is being done wrong is this tactic. I think this is a tactic of uh, WTC, the owning company. Uh -huh. Iron Man, right? Uh, where they say, "Well, we're going to put a panel together and discuss it and review everything." I think that is bullshit. I think it's well, the same tactic that you know, like energy companies wanting to not do anything about global warming. They're like, "Well, we need to get more data about this," you know, and like mm -hmm. uh, you know, tobacco companies or sugar companies. Apparently, sugar was the original tobacco company. They did all the, they did all the, well, we got to investigate this, you know, and, and in the meantime, what they're doing is just stalling and stalling and stalling and st and I remember one time on Twitter, I posted, wouldn't it be easier and faster just to arrange the slots? So there's the same number of men and women 
instead of all of this wrangling and herding of cats of different point systems and all the all the worry and fear of like what people think and all this other stuff just even it out and it's you know uh way less stressful and makes more sense and everybody's happy instead of the stalling and i have something else i forgot what it was i'm so freaking angry about it uh, oh and i think i think the 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 first thing that women's board should have done when they uh, got appointed to a, a women's panel of what to do about this uh-huh. I think the first thing they should they should have uh, they should have said, "Oh yeah, we we so want to have this panel." And uh yeah, put me on, you know, like Hillary Biscay's on it, and I don't know who else is on it. But uh let's um yeah, sure, we'll do this, you know. And then the first thing they do is they meet for like 2 days and then they held their they hold their own press announcement and say that having a panel to decide if women should have the same rights as men is a stalling tactic and they disband themselves <laughs> like immediately because i remember in uh civil rights and world history and stuff uh one of the things that gandhi did was called bef- uh what was it non-participation that led up that was the first stage of some of the stuff that he did to get freedom for Indians from uh, uh, Britain was like, we're not playing your game. We're just not going to participate. We're not going to buy your stuff. We're not going to do anything until we get our country back. And we're going to march to the sea and get salt. And we're going to do what we want to do. And we're not going to play by your rules. And that's what I think the women ought to do. This, okay. this, uh, I don't, I don't. this, this, all this pandering and begging for slots is just like, it's, it's playing along with the game, and they ought to, they ought to stand up and say we're not doing this, and they just ought to boycott it or something. Well, yeah, I, I have to say, in the interest of full disclosure, I haven't done a WTC race last year, and I haven't done one. I won't do one this year, and I didn't. I only did one the year before that, and then yeah. the year before that, I didn't do any. So I think, as a pro, I kind of look at the whole totality of the WTC and how they treat us, and just I've decided that they are just—they're not good partners for pro racing. I think they treat us very poorly. So one of the things that I think is so interesting about this is that even if they cave, we'll have spent a year and a half or whatever talking about gender equality, which is a notable thing, yeah. but that's actually one of my 10 grievances with the WTC. So I think this whole thing is a really great, they're eventually going to quote, do the right thing. And then they're going to look like they're good. And like, they see, we listen to you pros. We li-, you know, I still want my 750 bucks back for having to join their pro membership thing to, for the right to do their races, to promote their, to promote their company. Like, like, I mean, that's like, you know, we're not even talking about that issue. We're not talking about the fact that there used to be a hundred spots for men at Kona. Now we're down to 50, you know, or, or, I mean, a whole list of grievances that, you know, or the fact that they don't pay 10 deep or the fact that they don't pay out very much at all, or the fact that they, you know, do any, I mean, there's just any number of things that just make them terrible for pros. So the fact that we're, they're now like, you know, we're now hyper-focused on one thing, which we will win, I think. I think ultimately it's the right thing that will happen. Yeah. It's still kind of like, I, I, it would be, I think we'd be amiss 
to say, oh, see, the WTC is totally pro-friendly. Oh, the WTC did a good job with like, <laughs> yeah. see, the WTC is like, you know, they're down with pros. They're, they're down with communication. It, it's not. It's like they jacked 10 things. If they give one thing back, that doesn't make them good guys. Right. The other thing that, <laughs> so I think, you know, I think the other, uh, so I think in, as a tactic in that sense, it's brilliant. See, it's like, oh my God, see, we capitulated on something. Yeah, I know. You know That's what like, I'm well, saying. This is tactics uh, on their on Exactly. Their part. No, I agree. It's yeah. really frustrating. It's, as a, the, we as are, been, people are so focused on getting their slots and working to get their slots. I'm like, this is freaking yeah. ridiculous. This is like I mean, working for black people to get us to not have to sit in the back of the bus. You know what I mean? It's like, it's really, a, it, the, the gender equality thing is really offensive. And I'm not yeah. saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be outraged by it. All I'm saying is, you know, we're going to be totally outraged about that, but we're not going to be outraged the fact that they jacked all the pro money out of, you know, five different races this year. Right? Oh, so like, I know. Right? Ironman, like, classic, classic, a total classic is no, no longer, longer pro. a pro race, right? Yeah. Or, you know, or, or this whole movement so that they, you know, or the, again, the pro membership fees or the, you know, pro membership. I mean, that's like, they basically, I mean, it's, the whole thing is, it's just very anti-pro. Yeah. And what's great is, you know, you don't have to do their races anymore, pros. Like challenge is great. You know they're putting up tons of money. They're paying. They're paying ten deep. Yeah. They have races that are on par with or better than the WTC. Right. I mean, Quasi is in Connecticut is an amazing event. It is an they need to have races event. in Texas. I want a race in Texas you know, so bad. Same with like um, you know I did Challenge Atlantic City. Yeah. It was a fantastic race. I yeah. did. Um, and anybody who knows anything about Challenge Roth, Challenge Roth is one of the great moments in all of sport in any any endurance sport right. challenge roth is as good as you know any endurance event out there the new york it's as good as the new york city marathon it's as mm-hmm. good as the um you know yeah, it's, it's just up, it's you know it's, it's awesome. just you know 100 they have like 100,000 200,000 it's just an enormous event and you know so this like hyper focusness on the ironman and the mdod and the wtc i think i think it's a mistake for pros because ultimately they're really not good partners for us um, you know, and chasing, and then, and like the point system itself, you mentioned, you alluded to, it's a total disaster for pros. You know, it's, it has them racing way more than they should. It's not oh, good for yeah. their health. It's not good for their pocketbook because they're flying yeah. around. They're trying to get all these points and it's like, and it's stopping them. It was designed to stop them from doing these other races and to only do WTC races. Right. And then they're like, Hey, now that you have to do WTC races, we're going to jack up money out of them. So now you're, if you're a pro, you're flying to all these races to for payouts that are both tiny and only five or six deep, right? Mm-hmm. And you're paying them money for the privilege of doing it. And yeah. it's like, pros, why are you doing this? It's insanity. Like, it, it is. And here's it's the like thing. an abusive I, I relationship, a, you know? Like it's like it the is. more you, the more they. The the weird thing is is yeah there's something about it that is very much like an abusive relationship where it, it tends to lure the athlete in somehow some way. Well, I mean this is the this is the thing. People, the WTC is a for profit, economically rational um, actor, right? Right. Insofar as like ethics aren't really rational, like bottom line profit <laughs> is rational. So they're just trying to make as much money as possible. Right. Pros aren't actually trying to make as much money as possible. Pros are trying to have the best experience they can as an athlete, the same way age groupers are. Right. Pro athletes have more in common with age group athletes than they do with business. And what ends up happening is the pro athletes, just an age groupers, you should be able to understand this and relate to pros. 
they want to they want to compete. They want to compete against each other. They want to compete on the biggest stage. They want to chase their dreams. It's right. the and in that sense, it's the obligation in some ways of the sport to not exploit that. And right. unfortunately, the sport itself is owned by a company that does not have any problem exploiting that. Right. And you know, is using that to 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 exploit them. And I think that's you know that's really tragic. And we don't have a union, and we should. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a real, and we, you know, and that's a big problem. So and then you, you know something about unions. So what are, I do, I was what, a labor organizer for those of you who uh, don't know my personal bio. So for the pros or want to be pros out there or want to organize something, what are the steps? Hold on. Every neighbor in my yard, every neighbor around me has decided to mow their yard all at once. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what? And I worked in a union um, mm-hmm. in Chicago when I worked construction. And I made yeah, 18, I'm actually in a union at the moment. I, the I, I'm in the UAW. I made $18 an hour. I made almost a livable wage working mm-hmm. my ass off out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came back to Texas, which is not a union-friendly state, and was doing the same job for like $4 an hour, which totally taken advantage, or whatever, it was like 6 or 8 bucks an hour, totally taken advantage of the migrant labor force. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, so what are... Um, What's your, and I had to quit. I couldn't do it. It wouldn't pay my bills, you know? And so mm-hmm. um, what, what do you, what are the first steps? What does it look like for triathletes? If you were to try to get a triathlete union together, pro triathlete. Right. So if I was going to do it, I mean, I'm actually was a labor organizer. So this is uh-huh. kind of what I did. Uh-huh. Um, you need to get, you need to get the, if I was organizing any workforce, right? what you want to do is get the people who are the most well-respected, right? Mm-hmm. So this really, we need some of the big names, right? I think Chrissy Wellington was a very good spokesman on some level mm-hmm. for athletes' rights. I know she wasn't trying to unionize us, but she did yeah. a good job as a leader in the sport of doing, of, of taking principled stands in favor of pros. Right. And I think we need to get, you know, so in the first, the so that needs to happen. Of course, one of the things that's happened, right, is that the Ironman went in, bought up some of those people, right? Like Craig Alexander now works for Ironman, you know, right. he's still racing, but he's on the, you know, but he's on the payroll. So right. it's hard because you don't, that's get, a strategy in itself right there. Oh no, I'm sure it was intentional. Right? Oh, yeah. So, you know, by bringing in some of those, some of those people, is it true that Putin has disappeared the, and now working for, for WTC? <laughs> I mean, we don't, we can't say it's true or not true. Right. So we could go Fox, right. You just ask the question, right. right? Yeah. Is the, is Putin, Secretly masterminding a plot Headline. to ruin pros, to ruin pros, jack all their money, and will we end up in yes. a gulag with the other former business uh, capitals of industry in Russia? Right. You know. Yeah. And then mistakenly we, put up I'm, a picture of, of Obama when you say all this. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I go. Oh, sorry. Right. I mean, we're just asking yeah. the question. Yeah, we're okay. just asking the question. Yeah, just so, asking right, the question. Is the WCC intentionally preventing right. union unionization and leadership and change by um, <laughs> co-opting the most prominent names in the sport? I mean, I don't know. I just asked the question. Yeah. So uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't make a definitive statement. Anyways, no. No, um, but I think that's like that's the problem. I think that's where it would need to come from. You know, right. I think that there needs to be a real concerted effort. And then I think the other thing that's happened is there's been attempts to try to do this once before mm-hmm. or many times before, but they've never actually gone to a major union and said to like the UAW, Hey, UAW, we want to join your larger organization and have the resources to organize. Um, because with that, you, we would have lawyers, we would have union organizers, we would have, 
you know, we'd be, we wouldn't just be a website or, you know, we would actually be a, we would have a lot of ability for a prolonged so what would be the downside to really unionize of a union? They'd have um, to pay union there wouldn't fees. be. It would, yeah, I mean, union dues though aren't actually a downside, right? Because okay. you only pay union dues after you ratify a contract. Uh-huh. You only ratify a contract if it makes more than you were making before, minus the union dues, right? right. So if everybody gets a hundred dollar bump up, right? I'm just using a really round number yeah. or a thousand dollar bump up, and union dues are a hundred dollars. You're nine hundred dollars better off. That's the only way you'd ratify having a union. If not, you just say, oh, yeah, Now, could Iron Man say no union athletes? No. Or is that illegal? Can't. I mean, you can't. That's illegal. You can't, you can't discriminate against um, unions. It's not. It's an unfair labor practice. If, you're, you know, if, if, you're union, if your workforce wants to unionize, you have to, you know, now, could you have the to union... play ball. But they would, I mean, who, they would probably, you know, who knows what they do in, in response in terms of fighting back. I don't know. Could the it's a really weird demand, marketplace. So. Could the union demand that there be equal slots for women at Kona? Oh yeah, absolutely. And that would or be like, what? You know, what, you could absolutely what could they... organize. That, that would be one of the things that would be very easy as a collective bargaining agreement to yeah. do if there or was a real union. How does a What's union, that? Oh, the union says give us fifty, give us uh, equal slots? I'm not so big on the fifty, you know, mm-hmm. for women. I'm just more on being equal. So what? Right, I understand. Yeah, and so um, what they would say, give us equal slots for women, or what? Well, no, I mean, it would be one, it'd be part of a bargaining process, right? I mean, ultimately, everybody has to kind of work together to make the events and stuff happen, right? And there's, everybody always talks about unions and strikes, but in my experience, strikes are extremely, extremely rare. Yeah, that's there's a the million last things, but yeah. yeah, it's the last resort. There's a million different things that can happen between the time that you guys, that you reach an impasse in a bargaining, you know, whether it's a, you know, PR release thing, or whether it's a public pressure thing, or whether, and it's just all these different mm-hmm. tactics, you know? Where, whereas, like you know, people usually come to agreements. I've been in, I've been in union for ten years, and I've never, as a in my law job, my my office is actually organized under the U- United Auto Workers, um, which is a little funky because we're lawyers, but whatever. Um, the, the parent unions are not really big, and they cover a whole host of workforces. And we've never, we've never been on strike ever. I mean, we've had, right. you know, in, in twelve, I guess I've been to twelve years. We've had six contracts, and we've never had, you know, we've never had a strike. We never even have a threat of a strike. Like, we just, you know, there's been some tension and there's been some, you know, there's been some workplace action, but none of them are actually strikes. I mean, you know, that's such a last resort. It's very rare to see workers actually striking because usually, even the threat of a strike usually gets everybody to work it out, you know? It's kind of like being in a relationship, you know, you're like, I'm going to break up with you. It's like, okay, let's talk. You know, like everybody kind of, kind of, everybody kind of wants the same thing ultimately, which is for it to succeed. So, well, maybe that's not true in relationships. <laughs> I like, <laughs> but it is it it is true in uh, it is true in workplaces. So it would be like one possibility. But I mean, we're getting kind of like fanciful here. You know, it, it is no, ridiculous. I think, uh, I think the that the athletes are young, and a lot of them are you know went straight into this field without having real work experience. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot. Yeah, of them. no, it's true. And so they don't know um, how. A lot of times, if they knew how or what was available then they would take they would i think they just they're what what the um i think what wtc likes is to keep them tired and keep them isolated yeah and it, i mean listen we do that on our, our own you have to you have yeah. to train extremely hard to be a professional and keep them competitive with each other right so then they oh, don't absolutely. The, dude the the it's almost impossible for them to organize as a group um right that's true yeah uh, and they like that. Uh, you, you know? You're seeing a little bit. You you are seeing though. This is interesting. You are seeing more teams forming mm-hmm. because there's actually a real, really like I see the U.S. pro tri team. 
as a great example of this, they're um, fantastic at pooling resources, right? So they come together and rather than 10 guys having to chase a bike sponsor, one guy chases a bike sponsor and they get 10 of them. Right. So all of a sudden, like, so once you ha- once, you know, I know there's like a, Andreas Railard's on a team, you know, like those teams have actually like start bringing people together. Mm-hmm. And the more of those, I think the better, because that'll, they'll start having leverage too, right? Like Timex, you know, Timex is a sponsor of Ironman or right. was forever. And they had a pro team and that gave them leverage, you know, and the, t- the athletes that were on that team had kind of sweet deal. So at least some of them did. So you have these, you know, from what I know, which is limited, but I knew some of the guys on there. And so you have these, um, you have these uh, opportunities for um, for organizing kind of like at the grassroots level and then hopefully building into something bigger. But but it's true. And on the other thing, too, is that because the turnover is really quick, you know, there's not a lot of pro athletes who have the kind of legacy that I do. I'm not legacy, uh, longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have much of a legacy. But I do have a lot of longevity. You know, I've seen the sport change a lot. Yeah. And I remember what it used to be like and how much worse it is in some ways for pros right now. Yeah. And if you're just coming in, like, this is just the status quo, right? Like, you're like, oh, yeah, well, of course oh, yeah. I pay Iron Man $1,000 yeah. every year. The back like, of the bus looks great. Of... Yeah. Looks nice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, so in some ways it's like it's kind of a yeah. problem. But So um, Brett Sutton you know, wrote so an that's, article. That's what they should do. This isn't, you know, I'm actually getting near the end of my career, so I'm not going to be a part of any of this. And I'll, I'll miss out on it, but... You know, I wish all the. Oh, you I wish have all, all this time to organize would, a union. Actually, probably could. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Give Wellington a call. But well, I do want to race a little. I do want to race a little longer. Anyways, yeah. Listen so, to what Brett Sutton said. Uh, did you read his article that? that he wrote? His blog. Mm, which wrote? one? Um, well, yeah, first he's a perfect off, example of. He's a perfect example of somebody who has a whole, who's really cool. You know, has a lot of organ. Who's organized a lot of really great athletes, and so yeah. he could be a force for some of this too, as well. Um, First off, you know, he's hired sure somebody he's to, correct his, it, to correct his his writing. So, uh-huh. uh, because remember, he used to post stuff on Twitter that just did not make any sense at all. He had to have like a, a Sutton translator. Do you remember uh-huh. that? <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> but now that he's got somebody that's cleaning up what he's writing, it is so amazing. This guy's brilliant. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and um, he went from sounding crazy to sounding like just. Uh, what people have always said that he sounds he's really smart and insightful so he said um with the power of this that people are aren't grasping the full power of the 50 women nakona um grouping and hashtagging and 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 uh what's going on with this mm-hmm. that yeah um wtc is going to have to submit to the power of this group and he's saying while they're at it the people <laughs> the people behind it need to grab this you know horse by the reins or whatever you want to say your local colloquialism and and um say okay we'll give back some of the slots we'll do 30 slots men and women instead of 50 or something like that but what we want now is fair treatment of the pros and if you qualify because going to going to Kona you end up poorer than if you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, for most pros, right? So um, you qualify for Kona, then you get a $3,000 bonus, qualification bonus, a $1,000 travel expense check, and three nights paid accommodation at Kona and get treated like a a real pro. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's totally fair and relevant. I do, yeah. the only I think that's a great idea. The only and I think that's a great place to start. I the only thing I would say in addition to that is this is the problem that the last time we organized was, which is you had people looking out for themselves. So Brett's got a bunch of people who make it to Kona every year, right? Uh-huh. So he's like, hey, we should do these things for my people. And then right. what ends up happening is people say, okay, well, that's cool, but what about these people? What about this people? Right. And then you know, what about the secondary pros? Each other. What about... Yeah, yeah and it, it ends up being really decisive. So he's saying, hey, they should do this and they should do that. I totally agree. But what I, but what you originally asked was like, okay, let's talk about like what a union would look like. And that has to be inclusive of all pros. Right. And that's the only thing. And it has to be a, it has to be a top down yeah. or t- bottom up, but it has to include everybody. So making, issuing like one or two specific demands is, definitely going to help the people it helps, but it's not a union. That's the only, that's the only, that's the only difference, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, they might win this concession. They might win that concession. And I hope they do because it's going to help, you know, people who are pros and I want to see them help. But it's not, um, unfortunately it's not an opportunity to to make, uh, you know, when, when you start listing demands, right, they should, you can start, there's no reason to stop. It's just, you know, the three or four that you care about most. Yeah. Which you know, Brett's got a very Brett Sutton has a very you know, specific agenda based on you know every single one of those demands is easily traced back to what his athletes, <laughs> to his own economic interests, right? These are the these are my people, and I want to help them. So, but and, I also and think it's kind of the standard the for um, well, not maybe not the qualification bonus, but it is the world champ. There are world championships, um, but like a travel a travel packet to get there. Mm. Yeah, like most what, uh, pros don't get a or no pros get a. Uh, travel. They do if they race for challenge. They got a uh, right. If you race person, for challenge, you do. Yeah, when they won, the winner of challenge AC got a uh, a, a trip to um, all the expensive paid trip to Buffalo for their half champs championships, and they do that in a number of venues. Yeah. If you win, if you you know last year, if you won a race, you got invited. You got a ticket and a accommodations to the, to their, you know, to their Bahrain race, which I guess was like kind of their de facto championships. I remember when I found out this, I was so naive, you know, like we all are beginning in triathlon, you know, like, uh, somebody said, this is like 10 years ago for me. Hey, you do good enough. You know, you could, uh, qualify for Kona or I was asking somebody, I don't know. Right. And, uh, and I said, Oh wow, that's cool. Okay. So, um, you get to go to, you get to go to Hawaii, to race, you know, because you qualify. Yeah. Well, cool. So they pay for it and everything for you to go. No. <laughs> right. No. In fact, you have to pay them, and you have to write the check right you there. Pay and you pay them, and I'm yeah. like, oh my god, yeah. this is the best. I don't know, like marketing or pyramid or something like that scheme. I forgot yeah, yeah, what you would call it. Um, they've created um, a game yeah. where you mm-hmm. got to pay to yeah, sure. if you win, you got to pay more to get your trophy. It's no, like it's true. It's crazy, right? Yeah. It's, so, it's, like it's, my ideal situation, I wish I could. I'd like to go to Hawaii on my own and mm-hmm. like see Hawaii. And I'd love to go to Kona and be in Kona, but I'd really like to qualify for Kona, and then that way I say that I'm that good, right? Because mm-hmm. um, that's an easy, you know, um, characteristic to define yourself with. You're that good, right? And then, but then not go <laughs> and <laughs> save my money, <laughs> and then go to uh, somewhere else that I really want to go. You know, like um, yeah, no, I. 
it's, I'm, I'm conflicted. I mean, as somebody yeah. who qualified for Conan when as an age grouper, it was the last age group race I did. I get it. Like, it's, yeah. it's the I've, gold standard. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a goal. It's a challenge. And everybody should have goals. Everybody should accept challenges. People with talent should chase after them. I get all that. You yeah. know, just unfortunately, when one person's dream is another person's business, you know, whether it's a pro or age grouper, it gets kind of, it gets kind of screwy. You know, like to one, you know, it's like one person's religion and another person's business. You know, it's like, you know, you're not one person's thinking clearly and rationally and economically and the other person's chasing their heart. And, uh, you know, you end up with a lot of exploitation, whether it's like you just mentioned, like how it kind of shakes out on an age group level or whether it's, you know, how it shakes out on a pro level. It's, you know, it's not. Yeah, I couldn't believe like you, you win, you win a slot to Kona, you know. And then right. uh, you got to pay eight hundred whatever dollars the net very next day to go, and yep. the flight and all, and then uh, mm-hmm. yeah, everything it's, else. It's, and it's like, what am I winning here exactly? <laughs> yeah, actually, the first time yeah. I qualified for the half world championships as a pro, I turned it down. I was like, uh, I was like, wait, I have to pay for this? They're like, yes, right now. I, uh, I almost now. qualified. It was in Austria. This, this, it is in Austria this year, and I, I came mm-hmm. within a few slots of qualifying this at Austin. Right, and I call, I called up my parents, and I mm-hmm. said, "Hey, if I get the slot, can y'all help me pay for this?" Mm-hmm. And they go, "They're not paying for it." <laughs> and I go, I, I, "I said, do you want to come with me? Because they have some travel money available, you know." And yeah. I'm like, "Do you want to come and see Austria, you know?" And and then uh, we can make a family vacation of it. But I, I need your help. Like, I need to help paying for my uh, trip there. And my mom was like, "Nope, sounds like they're taking it. Sounds like they're taking advantage of you." And this is somebody that's rational yeah. outside of the game, looking in. You know, that's not doing um, triathlons. Yeah. Didn't just do the race and all that stuff. Isn't all caught up in the emotions of it. She's like, "This is like you're being. I think you're kind of being taken." Yeah, yeah. I have to run. I actually have the team continuum of yeah. dot net. By the way, um, half marathon dinner tonight, which I'm really excited about. We have a bunch of athletes running the New York City Half Marathon who all raised uh, money for people's non-medical needs who have cancer. So yeah. people who couldn't really pay their cool. rent and mortgage and stuff. Yeah, and we raised, me and Christine raised seven grand uh, through our ultra marathon for that as well. Direct, wow. uh, personally, with the help of you, by the way, thank you, and yeah. some other people who listen to your podcast. And want to really thank all of them. That was fantastic. But also, want to tell everybody, we have uh, some slots remaining for the New York City Marathon. So okay. you get free coaching by me, free nutrition and consultation with Christine, um, and you can find all that at teamcontinuum.net, uh-huh. um, or just check out my website, johnhirsch.org. I'm sure there's, you can get clicky and make it over there. Uh, yeah. But I do have to run. I have their dinner starting shortly. Okay, man. Um, and we've been talking forever, so you better edit this down or else people are going to get really bored. <laughs> no, I'm going to tell them that the, the we talk about triathlon union stuff at the end, and uh, to stay, oh, to stay tuned for that. No, I think that... people are really interested in that right now. Really? Yeah. No, yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how we'll see how it hits. We'll hear. We want your feedback, listeners. What okay. what in this interview was good? What was bad? No, just and, what um, was good. And uh, what, what was, was bad? Good. Tell J underscore Hirsch at Twitter. <laughs> Um, <laughs> awesome my uh, man always good to catch up with you yeah. um, big hug to the wife um, okay. she's fantastic and we miss the hell out of you and we hope we cross paths yeah we'll see you later. soon okay awesome bro be right. well later bye Cheers. all right that was a ton of fun talking to john <laughs> some of it's probably inappropriate <laughs> but anyway 
There's no FCC on podcasting. We can do what we want. All right, man, it's time to talk with you guys about emails and answer a couple of questions. Let me answer a question first that came in by email before we get into the training log and talk about all kinds of overtraining and getting back into gear. So somebody asked me on Twitter, somebody donated to the show, and then you donate to the show, you get to ask me all the questions you want on Twitter and by email. And I'll tell you how to do that in a minute. But the question was, how does a beginner measure heart rate in the pool? And the question was um, Thomas Weiler over Twitter. And the question actually goes like this. I really enjoy your show. Keep it up. Can you recommend a swim heartbeat monitor for a beginner triathlete? Now, this is complicated because... There is no ideal solution. It's not like I can just say, hey, you know, a Garmin or a Polar or something like that works great uh, while out running or biking. You know, you can just do that and look at your heart rate because swimming induces a problem. And the problem is that, this is kind of cool to know, the frequency that modern heart, heart rates in the past like 10 years or so uh, transmit at, and it's to save... Um, battery. They transmit digitally and the digital, because digital uh, saves battery over analog, so they'll last longer, but digital uses um, 2.4 gigahertz frequency. And it's actually the exact same frequency that your microwave uses. Now, why does your microwave use this? It's because the wavelength 2.4 is the exact same frequency that excites water uh, and this is in your microwave, it excites water, and if water gets excited, like I was saying about John Hirsch, John Hirsch gets excited, he either has to do something, he has to move around and heat up, or he'll explode. So the water um, in your food starts vibrating, and vibrating, 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 and gets hotter and hotter and hotter, and that's how a microwave, microwave works. And the reason that it vibrates and gets hotter is because when the energy... The energy at 2.4 gigahertz, the wavelength exactly matches the water molecule, maybe. But anyway, so the water absorbs it. It can't go through the water. So since it can't go through the water, the energy has to go somewhere, so it just shakes the water instead. And then that that uh, causes the heat buildup, right? Ener- you put energy into something, well, the something has to do something because of the energy that's going in. So it has to shed, it transforms the energy into something else. It'll transform it as heat, for example. Um, and that's how you heat up food in a microwave. And that's why, uh, put something in a microwave that doesn't have any water in it and turn on the microwave and watch what happens. It doesn't get anywhere near as hot as something that has water in it. It's pretty cool. Okay, so what happens in the pool? Your heart rate, you put on a heart rate strap and your heart rate transmitter sends out 2.4 gigahertz trying to talk to your watch, but you are, there's not only a little water in the way, you are submerged in water and the signal only goes like a, an inch or two, a few inches maybe, before it just stops dead because the water absorbs the uh, signal coming off of your heart rate strap and it can't make it to the watch on your wrist. You'd have to hold your wrist like up to your chest. So now you've got a problem. Now, 
there's some old, so this is, these are the solutions. You can get an older, uh, heart rate strap and watch and make sure that it's analog instead of digital and anal- the uh, polar makes one maybe still, but anyway, um, it will pick up. Um, I would ask to make sure you've got a model, ask around on slow twitch or something like that to see if it'll work. But, um, it will pick up heart rate underwater because it's at a different frequency and the wavelength that's coming off of your transmitter um, isn't going to be absorbed by water. It goes fine. And so you could use that and have a dedicated swim heart rate uh, watch um, if you want to do that. Um, Another thing is Sunto has um, their heart rate strap now for their latest model watch, um, when you stop swimming and stand in the water with your heart rate strap above the water line and your wrist above the water line, over a few seconds, it'll transmit the data. It's got a memory chip inside the heart rate strap and it remembers what happened and then it'll transmit it to your um, watch. But it's not live anymore. It's like what happened since the last time that you did that. So it's not like you can swim along and see your heart rate on your wrist of what's going on right at the moment. Okay, and then um, another problem is that uh, swimming with a heart rate strap on uh, doesn't work really well, especially when you push off the wall and try to get streamlined. When you put your arms over your head and stretch your body out like that, your chest cavity gets smaller because you're stretching it. Like a rubber band gets skinnier when you stretch it. And then the push off from the wall is a lot of drag. It's a lot of force suddenly. And a lot of people have too much trouble keeping a heart rate strap on while swimming because of that. Now, if you were doing open water swimming, that wouldn't be as much of a problem. And especially open water swimming um, uh, with a wetsuit on or some kind of tri-top on to kind of keep it in place is another thing. And maybe you could use some kind of athletic tape to keep it in place. So, um, this has been a problem in swimming. Um, well, for triathletes, this has been a, been a problem in swimming forever. Uh, for swimmers, I can tell you what swimmers do. They don't even think about it. Not at all. They just go by perceived effort and it just, it's just too bad, you know, that, that it doesn't work, uh, that heart rate traps don't work, that perceived effort is what you have to go by. So there's a hybrid approach, and this is what I really recommend, is really pay attention while you're running and biking to what different heart rates feel like. Oh, there's another device I'll tell you about in a second. Um, There's a, uh, uh, pay attention to what the different heart rates feel like, and then uh, when you're swimming, you can pretty much nail down about what your heart rate is um, by perceived effort in the uh, in the pool um, without having to do uh, heart rate at all because you know from running and biking uh, what your heart rate is and that's the that's the fail safe method that just works time and time and time again you know um, it's not it's not a hundred percent truthful. But you take somebody that's been running and biking with a heart rate strap uh, for a year 
I don't even know how long, maybe not that long, a few months. And then you put them out on the bike and uh, take their heart rate strap battery out or take the heart rate strap off and then say, what's your heart rate? They'll probably be able to tell you within a beat or two. So um, being a beginner, like you're saying, um, you don't know that yet, but it's coming. You'll totally uh, be able to tell your heart rate. Um, It's a little bit lower in the pool because swimming is zero gravity and so it's less stressful on the body. And it's cooling, and and uh, there's a little bit of pressure on you, which is nice. And uh, so your heart rate's a little bit lower, um, but that's about it. Okay, so there's one other device I forgot about. Finis, F-I-N-I-S, makes a, and this is actually pretty cool. I have one, but I quit using it, so I don't know. You know, is it actually that good? Um, that clips to your earlobe, and then it tells you your heart rate through. Um, bone conduction uh, speaker that's pressed up against the side of your head uh, that you clip to your um, you clip to your goggles and then the ear clip which clips to your earlobe um, uses a I think it's called a light pulse pulse oximeter light pulse I don't forget what it's called but anyway it can see the um, it pushes light into your earlobe and then your heartbeat you know um, uh, pushes blood in and out of your ear and it can tell from the blocking of the light and allowing the light to pass through because of more blood, less blood, more blood, less blood. It can tell actually your pulse in your ear. And so you're swimming along and it, and you can program it to say, um, your pulse every so many seconds or every so many minutes or something like that. And then you can press a button and it'll tell you your pulse too. And, um, I found that kind of stuff, um, is good to get kind of started, and then as you get better at swimming, um, you kind of start leaving that equipment behind and then find you don't need it. So you could do that, and then when you find you're not using it anymore and you haven't used it in a couple of months, sell it to the next uh, newbie that wants to try it as well. All right, cool. Let's go ahead and uh, do some donations. And it hasn't been very long since the last episode, so we only have a few in here. And let's see, we have Jessica Woodruff. Dan Machia, or Machia, and Todd Endicott, and Carrie Honing, which might be Jeff Honing, <laughs> all donors, and also some other nice donations to the show through PayPal on the left-hand side of the show, oh, and Thomas Weilert, who asked the... Um, the heart rate question for swimming. Um, you can help support Zen and Yarda Triathlon by going to the left side of zentriathlon.com and clicking on the PayPal link. You can do a recurring donation, which is $1 per episode, about. It's about $4 a month, just under $4 a month. And, and or you can do a one-time donation uh, and donate however much you want. And these donations really do help out the show. It is super cool to have people on there and it really means a lot and it helps pay the bills i got uh, my wheel cover on the back of my bike has pretty much disintegrated too much energy has gone into it and now it's starting to come apart (laughs) i've microwaved it with my legs and i need to get another one of those and uh, for races that are coming up got uh galveston 70.3 coming up and ironman texas coming up which i'm racing for and i've worn out the rear tire on my bike so i got to replace that and these donations really really do help with the uh, podcast so you can do that and then also we have another sponsor 
Oh, we got two more things we want to mention. Amphibian Multisport, I think this is their last time on the show. And you need to check them out if you're in the Chicago area. Go to Libertyville, which is north of Chicago, and check out Amphibian. They have uh, indoor training. They have compu trainers. First day is free, $25 drop-in, uh, $25 uh, drop-in rate, 100 bucks for the month if you're active military or firefighter or police. And yeah, man, get on a compu trainer and see what you can actually do. And get your bike checked out. Do all kinds of cool stuff. They have uh, group training. looks like super, super cool. And you can check it out at amphibianmultisport.com. One of the great triathlon. I was about to say bike shop. It is a triathlon shop. One of the great triathlon shops in America. If you're in the Chicagoland area, go check them out. And thanks for being on the show, guys. It's been really, really cool. And then... We need to talk about Hornet Juice. (laughs) Hornet Juice is an amino acid that if you eat it, it gives you crazy freaking energy for the long haul because it is synthetic Japanese killer hornet saliva. And I'm not making that up. You should definitely not use it for sex. It is not recommended for sexual activity. No one has officially done tested on that and doesn't understand or know if you pump that much energy into your private areas if things will explode, and it's probably not a good idea. So just use it for endurance sports, unlike my friend who has tried it for other things, and I won't say his name. But Hornet Juice is on the right side of Zen in the Art of Triathlon. You can go scroll down over there on the right and it's, it's only like 60 calories per packet, but it lasts an hour and a half per packet. And amino acids, um, if you get them in the right proportions, then they turn on your fat burning. And that it allows you to actually get a ton more energy out of your body into the workout. And so you won't get sick uh, trying to eat so much sugar and stuff while going for a long workout. It's super cool. It's been around for a long time. I've been using it forever. It really does work. And by all the reorders that I get, um, you could totally tell that people, what people usually do is they buy like a four pack and then they come back and buy a 30. (laughs) They're like, holy crap, this stuff works. It's amazing. And it's super cool that uh, that it works that way. It's really nice. Oh, so uh, Hornet Juice worked out a deal with me a long time ago. We sell through Zen and the Art of Triathlon, and you, you the customer, get your Hornet Juice, and then because I helped uh, get the word out to you, I get just the tiniest bit off the top, and so it helps support the show, and it is the coolest way for you to help one of your favorite shows because, or maybe your favorite podcast, because you get a little bit of something. You get a whole lot of something. You get Hornet Juice, which is super cool and fun to train with and use in races. And then I get uh, a little bit to um, to help out the show. So you're helping yourself and h- helping out <clears throat> a podcast that you listen to all the time at the same time. It's super cool. You can't beat that, man. It's super cool. All right, let's go ahead and... Oh, it's on the right side. Take your mouse, go over to the right side of zentrathlon.com. Scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. Now see the purple and yellow hornet, right? The Japanese killer hornet? Click on that. Then select, scroll down, and select what size packet that you want. It's just like that. Go over there and check it out. 
and then get it, and then it'll come in the mail. Oh, and if you get it, you get an email from me. It's super cool. I ask you how you're doing, where you're living. It's nice. I love talking to you guys. It's a great time. Okay, then let's go ahead and get started with the training log so we can get this show out there. Let's see, I start overtraining and I start blowing up and having crappy workouts and I describe exactly how that happens. And at the very, very end of the show, I totally redeem myself and have a nice workout and tell you what I did to uh, get all that done and the symptoms and all that kind of stuff of getting overtrained, so stuff to watch out for. So lots of cool tips and tricks in there for you to use. All right, here's the training log. Here we go. You are entering the Zentrite training log zone. Kuneli. Hi, everybody. My name's Brett. I'm a triathlete. I decided it's time I got some friends more suited to my status. But Joe, we've been friends for years. Hey, we all make mistakes. Come on, dudes, let's go exercise. Exercise! Yeah! I'm gonna do sit-ups till I poop myself. All right. Welcome to a new training log. Started March 26th, <laughs> 2015. I'm out running with Kona. The Wonder Dog. What's up, dude? On a uh, on a nice little boulevard road with cars. Not many though, but no streetlights. It's dark. It's nighttime. And I was just listening to an audiobook that I paused so I could tell y'all about it better than before. It is such a cool review first person narrative of a woman that is trying to research and try every single kind of habit method to be better than before and I might have mentioned it on the last show I was enjoying it but she was just talking about something that's really cool for triathletes to know And it's watch out for habits that have an end goal or a finish date, such as I'm going to do a marathon, right? Because it's got a finish line. I'm going to train for a marathon or I'm going to try to get a six pack. I'm going to try to get six pack abs by my 30th birthday. Right, that's an end date. Hold on, I gotta cross a little bit of traffic here. Hello, 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 don't hit me. Alright, thank you. And what happens is, and I have personally seen this so many times, the habit is a wrong concept. Because when the person crosses the finish line, they're done. They have nothing else to do the habit for. So they quit. And how many times have you seen people do Ironmans? One and done, right? Marathons, one and done. Or they get to their goal weight and then they fall off the diet right because 
what they do is you reward yourself. You reward yourself with, um, I'm on a quiet road now. I need to be quiet. I'm going to scare the locals. <laughs> we used to sing a chant in the core when we used to run in platoon around campus early in the morning. I won't say it. It's filthy. Gotta be quiet. Anyway. God dang, man. I've been running my whole life. I'll get to that in a second. I just realized. It's like when I realized I've been riding a bike my whole life. Or walking everywhere my whole life. Anyway, um... You reward yourself with a break. While I'm here, or it's kind of like a letdown. Like, well, here I am. And so you quit for a while. And then not doing the thing is pretty nice. <laughs> you know what's better than going out for a run in the morning sometimes, early in the morning? Is laying in bed. You know? So she also talks about. The sabotage, all y'all, of um, of a reward that's counterproductive to the activity. So, like sometimes I like to go for a run or whatever, and then have a beer afterwards. It is a bad idea. You're undoing the whole point of the task, right? Car, 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 car. If you got this podcast, probably still alive. Anyway, she quotes an episode of Friends where Chandler's smoking a cigarette and Phoebe says, but you haven't smoked for three years. And he said, and this is my reward. So a better reward would be buy yourself some new running shoes. Save up another five bucks towards your running shoes. Another pair, right? Instead of a beer. How much does beer cost? A buck? Buck and a half? Buck and a half if you like the good stuff. Instead, you could be putting a buck and a half towards a new bike every workout where you don't drink a beer and then you stay healthier healthier fitter and then you get a new bike in the end it's pretty cool anyway so yeah my realization I've been running my whole life so grew up playing soccer and soccer soccer players run a mile to three miles to six miles or something like that or if you're pro you know like an insane amount of miles per game so there's practices and all that and then let's see there's soccer and then basketball and then football American foot foot not football but football and then military school <laughs> five, six days a week 
up, running three miles probably every morning, 5.30 a.m. And then a lot more running on top of that. And then a little bit of track. And then the core, my freshman year. <laughs> you have to run if you're a cadet in the core. They used to do this. I don't th I think they, I think they banned it. It's hazing. You had to run everywhere if you were on the core part of campus, which is a big part of campus. And I lived on the fourth floor. So I had to run four flights of stairs to my room. Four flights down. Every single class. And about a quarter mile every time I left my dorm room to get off campus. Run, run, run. And that's on top of the regular running. Run, 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 run. You'd think I'd be faster. And then... What I started doing triathlon when I was 29, 30. So I had a nice break there. <laughs> but I was actually starting to run a little bit. But not much. Crap, that's a lot of running. No wonder I like it. I know it works. Alright, I'm gonna get off the mic. I'm about to turn, about to turn into a headwind. So, I'm just running super, super easy. I figured out I was doing too much. I need to slow it down. Way down. Back off a little bit. All right, out and big. All right, buenos dias. It's the next morning since I left you on my little run last night. Really continued, continuing to enjoy that book better than before. But uh, I'm going to I think I'm getting uh I know I'm getting overtrained doing too much and so I just went to swim this morning and cut it short halfway through and what really uh, reminded me is the uh, article I was reading last night on triathlete magazine talking about how to know if you're overtrained and um, basically what's going on is you're not getting enough recovery in and uh, your body can't improve anymore. And so let's say in the case of running or you know, all this triathlon crap, you uh, your workout speeds, even your cruising speed, just easy speed gets slower and slower and slower. And But the death spiral that you can't seem to break out of is, well, I'm getting slower. Um, so I should speed up. I should, I need to train more <laughs> and maybe I'll break through when I, when I train more, I'll break through the slower because training before has made me faster. So training more now will make me, uh, break through this, you know? Um, <sighs> so it sucks because it's, it's damaging to the ego. One, you messed up. Right, and no one likes to admit that that they were wrong, and uh, that's a, one of the biggest things that, as a grown ass man, you need a grown ass woman that you need to be able to do is admit when you messed up. And I did that at work the other day. 
I messed something up and I've gotten so much better at this kind of stuff than I used to be. And I said, uh, I failed. I went to my boss and I went to my coworker and I said, I failed. I failed to do this and I failed to do that. And I should have done this and I should have done that. Uh, and then, you know, the sky didn't fall. It was all right. Um, so one, it's admitting that you messed something up and two, there's many things probably there's probably one through 20, but, uh, then you're, now you've got a setback. You got to stop doing what you were doing that was improving you. So that doesn't help either. And there's uh, several ways to handle it. One way is to continue to show up for your training, but just don't train as much. Back off. I, that's a double-edged sword because I've been noticing these symptoms for a week or so, and uh, I've still been out training and um, and just holding back, and nah, doesn't work. <laughs> um, so you know you get stronger like uh, right before a race you know you taper so that you get you allow all your stuff to soak in and get stronger you know and it's obvious that's the way to reframe it is uh, start getting tired taper but you're not tapering for a race you're tapering for your body to recover and all stuff so uh, this article in Triathlete Magazine was talking about overtraining or something like that I forgot the title of it but you have all these systems uh, that like uh, hormonal and all kinds of stuff that go on and, and repair you after your training you start wearing those down they can't do the repair work or they can't keep up and more training suppresses them so that you can keep uh, going and it's bad news um, one crazy symptom is um, you're not able to uh you're, you get uncomfortable in hot or cold temperatures uh, more than you used to. And uh, that's definitely, that's one of my indicators is I start getting cold and I don't like it. Like, I, my body can't handle cold like it did before. Like, it's, it's really weird to get cold or you, get, you start feeling cold and uncomfortable in temperatures that aren't as cold as they uh, used to be. So basically, one of the other things is, oh, so I'm going out for a run, you know, and my easy cruising pace on a run was a low eight, high seven on a good day. And now I'm struggling with a low nine, you know, just running easy and nothing seems to help. And you'll have like, or it's taken me forever to get my watts up on the bike when I'm riding. And... You'll have uh, the occasional day where um, you do a whole lot better than before, but I think it's actually a result of overfueling with carbs, and your body goes, "Oh, cool! I got rocket fuel for for a minute," and then that's a bad um, that's a bad place to be because now you're becoming like super sugar dependent for a performance, and that's how you can uh, go into a death spiral into that that world of bad stuff and anyway I had oh here's a, here's a state trooper I had such good results uh, with the polarized training which had a lot more rest built in 
that I've kind of gotten away from that because of fear. Wait, hold on. There's a, there's a cop. Okay. I don't know why I'm, I'm worried about it, but whatever. <laughs> Just need to focus on driving. Uh, the, uh, fear of uh, got an Ironman coming up. We want to do better than ever before. So you start adding in more workouts and more volume and that's a problem. The, uh, The thing is, is with uh, recently, over the past uh, fall and winter, I've had such awesome results, huge PRs, and uh, uh, increases in power and speed and hill climbing ability with polarized training, where if you do it right, which I was, I was doing, was uh, there's lots of gaps in training to um, allow you to absorb the work and the, <laughs> the uh, I got an analogy here in a second it's pretty good the um, if you can't absorb the work well then you know you're not anyway so I'm cruising along uh, well when I was doing polarized training I kind of lost my train of thought there for a second when I was doing polarized training I kept getting stronger and faster and also had more time available to do stuff with the family. And then I had my best ever 50 mile trail run, you know, it was like nine hours, nine and a half hours of running. And, um, that's endurance, man. That's freaking endurance. And it really, it's really weird. Like what's bothering, what's bothering me? Well then with the fear of, um, and the want of wanting better results, um, you start, I started, um, adding in more volume in the pockets of free time that I had. And then that quit allowing me to absorb the time to absorb the training that I was doing already. And then your body can't recover from it. And it's, uh, it's really interesting. You, um, like today's swim and a lot of my recent workouts it's been it's like um, it's like uh, you're pouring water out of a hose just pouring you know it's just running out of the hose into a bucket right and the the bucket <clears throat> would be um, you know your bucket of awesome right and you're filling it up with uh, with you're filling up your bucket of awesome with awesome because you're out training, but it's like the bucket's already full. You wish the bucket was bigger, right? But the bucket's already full, and water is just um, water is just spilling over the top, and your body isn't soaking it up. Or it's like yeah, it's like soaking up a it's like wiping up a, a water on the floor. But the sponge is already soaking wet, and so you're just kind of pushing water around. And you, once you realize your body isn't absorbing the work anymore, you're like, crap, this is more wasteful of my time than anything else. <laughs> so anyway, that's what's going on. I'm back at the house. I'm, uh, yeah, so I cut my swim short. I just got out at like 26 minutes in. I was like, 
I'm not soaking this up. This is ridiculous. Uh, but then, but then the ego is like, well, crap. Uh, you know, who you messed up, man. What are you doing? Uh, just keep swimming, keep swimming. Maybe you'll get better. It's like, no, at some point you got to pull the plug on it before the world pulls the plug on you. Right. All right. Out. Bang. All right. Let's go ahead and wrap up this podcast. I am sitting in the Zentri home studios, looking at my filthy bike that's sitting on the back porch and went for a bike ride today. And it's actually the first day where it wasn't cool or cold. It was just right. Man, if every day could be like this, it was amazing. It was pretty windy. Got blown around on the road some. But anyway, I was out riding around on the Ultra Baby course, which was a lot of fun, and doing intervals. I've taken a, two days pretty much off training and then went back out and uh, felt strong enough to do intervals and was uh, drinking You Can, which I got off of Tawny Prazak's website. Uh, at a discount. <laughs> Stuff's so expensive. I don't know if I'd call it a discount, but it works really nicely. And yeah, I think that's about it for uh, this episode. Taking a break was nice, letting all the systems come back online. It's hard taking a break though. Once you uh, once you get used to uh, not training, I'm sorry. Once you get used to training so much, um, not training is pretty humorous. So what you do is you fill your time with other stuff like cleaning your bike and ordering parts off the interwebs and, for example, coaching, which I need to catch up with. And, by the way, uh, Brandon Marsh has um, some coaching available. Let me go to the link so I can tell everybody. And it's a virtual squad, so you can save some money if you don't want to um, pay a lot for one-on-one coaching, and it's tied in with uh, the Real Starkey podcast, which is pretty cool. Lots of details. Go to uh, team-marsh.com, and at the top, there's some tabs, and one is called coaching, and um, it's got the news up there. And also, Brandon is a bad ass swimmer and biker and runner but man his swim is insane he leads the swim at uh kona and ironman texas and so on and so forth it's just unbelievable how fast he is so um check him out he's been on the podcast a bunch and i just actually did some uh, private messaging with him on twitter so he's a friend all right anyway that's it for the show let me uh wrap up with a sponsor let's throw that in there uh, today's bike ride was brought to you by uh, a little bit of Amrita bars. About um, definitely, I brought an Amrita bar with me in my back pocket. Um, nice quality carbs that aren't super fast acting, just nice and slow. And I actually ended up not eating it, but I did have an Amrita bar. Didn't need it with the you can stuff. Um, it was kind of a backup just in case. And then I did have an Amrita bar earlier today. Yeah, it was earlier today. Um, I could feel like I really just hadn't had enough carbs and I was like, man, you know, I need to, I need to eat something and something, uh, but I don't want something, you know, nasty or unhealthy or whatever. I was just going to go outside and throw the football with Kai and I was just kind of hungry. And so I had an Amrita bar. I had an apricot one. Oh, so good. And, uh, was throwing the football with Kai, 
which is really funny what happened. Kai went to a camp, just a one-day, few hours-long camp on the Texas A&M campus uh, with the Texas Aggie football team. And, um, and you know, they're, they're a top-ranked, uh, massive football team, and they have this kids' day where kids can come. And uh, Emily drove them there and just kind of hung out in the stands while, um, while he was there. And I'd done a bunch of other stuff. Oh, Pinewood Derby and all kinds of crazy stuff already that day, and I needed a break. So Emily was taking them, and Emily came back and said, you would not believe what happened. <laughs> I was like, what? And she showed me pictures and a video of of the craziness at this camp, and it was so great for kids and so much fun and inspiring and stuff. And then in the news last night, there was a video of Kai at – on the in the local paper in the local website paper of the news with his uh, he's being lifted on the shoulders of one of these giant football players and then Kai he goes all right count down and then Kai goes one two three gigam Aggie <laughs> and it made this video and the photo uh, of my son uh, being like the star kid, which he he just happened to be in front of the camera at the time, but being the uh, not star kid, what do you call him? The center of focus at this uh, football camp that made all the news is outrageous. It's so funny. I'm like, oh no, he's doomed to want to be an Aggie from now on. With that, that is just crazy. And I'm gonna have fun at work uh, next week. I'm showing that to people. Because uh, it because uh, my uh, group of coworkers and friends don't think that I'm a, as good of an Aggie as the rest of them because I'm not so into the uh, football as they are. I'm more in the sports you can actually do and stay healthy for life. And football um, has a real short uh, lifespan. It's not something you want to do for the rest of your life. And uh, and so I'm just kind of like, ah, you know, whatever. Uh, it's all right. I'd rather be into running or biking or swimming or something like that. And uh, so I don't follow it as closely. But there was times where I was, I mean, my the Texas A&M mascot was my roommate the second half of my freshman year, <laughs> right? And I was out on the field at the 50-yard line with the mascot and all that other stuff uh, when I was in the core uh, my freshman year and, um, you know, went to all the different football games. I was security in the core for the mascot, Um um, my freshman year. So, um, I've been there, done that, you know, you can't get more into it than I was. Um, I'm just kind of uh, a little bit past that. And, uh, so, uh, at work, when I show these coworkers, you know, how my son was in the middle of all this, they're going to be like your kid. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> just got lucky, but it was fun. But anyway, so I was out throwing the football with Kai yesterday or no, this morning and, uh, wanted something to snack on and Rita bars was nice. And it was perfect. I ate about two-thirds of it, and then a little while later, I ate a little bit more. And they're super, super healthy. And you can get some, too, and maybe make a first-round draft pick uh, football team stardom yourself uh, and get lifted on the shoulders of awesome people and be on TV. With discount code, let me find it. It's either Zentry. That's it. All caps. Zentry. No, Zen. Three letters. Z-E-N. All caps. 15% off. Just go to amritahealthfoods.com. Just Google Amrita Bars, A-M-R-I-T-A, and check it out. 15% off. 
discount code Zen. All right, that's it for this episode. Everybody stay safe out there. Uh, next episode, I've already got Tawny recorded for a show and going to try to get uh, Angela in on a show. And uh, she promised she'd be on one. Um, so we just got to do the recording to make it happen. So that's it. All right, everybody stay safe out there. Work the uphills, cruise the downhills, and keep the rubber side down out.